Well, hello, and welcome to another wonderful and fanciful episode of Failure Peace Theater. I am your amiable co-host, Tim, and with me, as always, is... Catherine! My sister, and we are here to talk about... Uh, we didn't mean to turn this into the Alex Proyas podcast, but by God, we've done it. It's happened. Um, we can't do it anymore after this, because he doesn't have any more movies, but... We're just going to go ahead and get it out of the way now. We're going to rip the Band-Aid off, mm -hmm. and we're going to talk about Gods of Egypt, <sighs> featuring no Egypt. None whatsoever. <laughs> no, zero Egypt. The, Not no sure for that. where this took place. No need for that in, in our film about Egypt. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we're going to talk about uh, Alex Preuss's most recent and... I'm going to posit last major theatrical film. Uh, I don't know if he's going to get another swing. Uh, maybe, uh, you know, in Hollywood, who knows, but he himself seems disenfranchised with Hollywood. So this, this may be one of the final things we get. Yeah. He, he only makes a movie about once every six to seven years. So 2022, we'll check back in. Thanks to hot topic. He's still get. making lots off of that, that crow franchise. That's true. Very true. I read an article not too long ago where he was talking about the remakes and how, you know, his opinion on it is to just sort of let that stand as, as Brandon Lee's gift to the world and, and don't try and muck about with it. But uh, I don't know. We'll see. But in this case... That's with my hot um, topic check. <laughs> like I said, I think, uh, I think he's doing, I think he's doing all right, but not because of this film. Let's put it that way. But before we get into the debriefing, the deep debrief on Gods of Egypt, what you been watching? Um, this week, not a ton. I, I don't really even know where this week went. <laughs> I feel like I sat down to several times to start movies. I was going to watch, like, I had this this moment on, earlier in the week. I looked up. Uh, new Netflix, I was browsing, I saw that Mask of the Phantasm was still on Netflix, I was going to watch that, mm -hmm. went yeah. to watch it, they've just removed it, within Aww. days. I may have missed it by hours, I'm not really sure. Um, yeah, it's possible. So, that sucked, um, because my, my husband would like to go through the entirety of the animated series and watch all of the animated series movies, um... Because he's confessed he doesn't know a ton about Batman other than just the theatrical releases. So that's sort of hmm. our plan coming up. Sure. Yeah, that's a good way to get up to speed with the fullness of the Batman universe. I'd say that's true for a lot of people. Because the animated series did a really good job of blending a lot of the classic villains. You know, the villains that have never really existed yeah. on the tier to make it into the theatrical stuff. And treat them well, you know, Clayface, yeah. that kind of stuff. One of my favorite arcs. I love Clayface on the show. What a great, great treatment of that character. Yeah, Does very it, much and so. And of, of course, Mr. Freeze. I mean, we've yeah. seen Mr. Freeze, but the animated series handling of Mr. Freeze is, has become the de facto Mr. Freeze for most interpretations. So. Well, you know, it took what's a very cheesy character and and made it very sensitive and very very touching. I mean, I can remember mm -hmm. being very moved by by those episodes. Um, yeah, yeah, it was very true. 
but yeah, we're we're starting that journey. So we may eventually come back around and watch the Batman films again after all of this to see what he thinks of them. Um, Let's see if that helps with the reinterpretation. Yeah, because uh, he is a big fan of The Dark Knight. He said he really liked that film. Um, and of course, he's seen all the other ones because he lives with me. Um, but otherwise, not not into Batman things. That would be that would be cool. Always fun to have uh, the ability to sort of introduce people to a, a wide and beautiful world like that, and it definitely is one. So that's awesome. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure I've got a copy of Mask of the Phantasm if you need it. Um, nice. It holds up pretty well. You can feel the the very defined three-act structure of it when they decided that they were going to split it up yeah. into episodes. Um, but it, it's, uh, it still plays very well. It's, it's good. Uh, it's been a long time since I've seen it, but I was a huge fan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was just nice to see something in the theater having to do with Batman at a time when <laughs> that didn't uh, suck <laughs> Batman was kind of not great so it was pretty cool um similar for me during the week I didn't have a lot of time for for movies a few things uh here and there but uh Saturday we just had a, a chill we didn't have anywhere to be and nothing to do in particular so um I for some reason, we got on a James Bond kick. I guess the news of, of No Time to Die being moved you know, again into next year. I was kind of thinking about Bond and, and Craig's interpretation of it specifically. So I revisited Quantum of Solace, which I had not done in a long time. And that's generally sort of considered the bastard child of the Craig films, the the sort of ridiculous ones. Uh, and I, th I watched that one and Spectre, which are the two... That most people out of this current set don't care for. Obviously, Skyfall was huge; everybody loved it, and it was it was very good. It's very personal. Uh, and then, of course, Casino Royale was just just very good. I liked Casino Royale. Yeah, it's a good just bog standard James Bond. It was a great kickoff to what the year Daniel did that Craig version of it. Uh, oh, oh five, oh seven. Oh my god! Oh, that was a long time ago. Dang. Because I was in uh, Australia when I saw that. 2006. Yeah, yeah I was in Australia when I saw that. That's crazy. Casino Royale was 08, a long I think. Time ago. Or uh, Quantum of Solace was 08. Uh, so yeah, it was just very much a... I mean, and, and watching those two early Craig Bond films now, I mean, you realize that was like 15 years ago. <laughs> like, he's been Bond for a long time. I, I, I'm totally surprised that he continues on. With the, you know, obviously they've said this is his last one, but I've, I've, he really has grown through that part uh, in a lot of ways. So, so I watched Quantum of Solace, just bumming around, uh, and found it. It's, I mean, they're all very watchable films, uh, sort of like the film we're going to talk about tonight. It's, it's not an unwatchable mess. Quantum of Solace lacks a clear villain and a. They spend a bunch of time building up a shadowy organization that they ultimately go nowhere with. So it feels a bit wasted. Um, but Craig's good. The set pieces are good. The plane chase at the end is particularly solid, uh, just in terms of Bond. But And then uh, I'd only seen Spectre once, and I was 
kind of half watching it when I watched it. I tapped out pretty much as soon as Dave Batista showed up. And uh, not because I hate Dave Batista, not at all. I, I think he's he's actually turned into a very fine, uh, you know, very physical actor. But his character in that movie, uh, who is never named, the only way you know his name is by the license plate on his incredibly expensive car that he wrecks while he's chasing James Bond. Uh, and his name is Hinks, Mr. Hinks. Oh, uh, and, he, and he has metal fingernails on his thumbs. That's, okay. That's, yeah, you know, okay. so he's like uh, the guy with the diamonds in his teeth, or, uh, or who throws or, a but, shoe. Honestly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it just it does. Okay, like so, his power move is he gouges out your eyes with his metal thumbnails. Okay, gotcha. Uh, you know, just lacks a compelling villain, and then of course, you know, they were they tried to do the uh, it's not con reveal of Star Trek <laughs> into darkness uh, because, Oh, it's not Blofeld. His name's Fron Oberhauser. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, sure it is. Yeah. You hired, <laughs> you hired Christoph Waltz to play Franz Oberhauser, a character that you just made up. Sure. You did. <laughs> and you know, so the Blofeld reveals a little bit on the, you know, it's a little bit anticlimactic. Um, I did like their sort of subtle modification of, you know, strapping James Bond to a table and shooting a laser at his balls thing. Uh, you know, like that was was cute the way that they did it up the thread a bit. But, you know, just that one, Spectre, I think, and maybe this is the problem with Quantum of Solace too, it just feels like a James Bond film going through the motions, right? They're They're doing all of the things necessary to make a James Bond film, right? Big stunts, beautiful women, asshole lead character, you know, just, just the standard stuff. Um, you know, Spectre looked very good. Sam Mendes is a great director. I'm very excited to see Kerry Fukunaga's No Time to Die. Uh, Fukunaga's a great director. He's got a good eye, but he's also very good with performance. Uh, I'm kind of interested to see what they do with it. Uh, so I watched both of those, and then just keeping the Anglophile train running, uh, I let my son pick our, our sort of like dinner, let's lounge around movie, and he picked Christopher Robin with Ewan McGregor, and uh, ironically also directed by Mark Forster, director of Quantum of Solace, I had nothing to do with his choice, uh, but he picked that, and then that segued into uh, what I'm going to refer to as our our. British Bear Evening, because then we watched Paddington. And uh, if we'd had time, we probably would have watched Paddington 2 as well. It was, it was getting too late, so we, we skipped that one. But uh, So yeah, just a full Saturday of James Bond and bears. talking talking teddy bears. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> but uh, it was good. It was fun. It was just really relaxing. Uh, and then today, we just watched I watched Gods of Egypt to remind myself of the insanity and uh, a little bit of Clash of the Titans, and that was about it. So, uh, but yeah, that's that's uh, that's all I've really had time for. Nothing especially new or, or up to date. Just a lot of revisiting of stuff that I haven't thought about in a while. So, not too bad then. But so, shall we? Shall we then begin our long march across the hot, burning desert sands? Yes. That take us to the beautiful oasis of the Nile, Oof. where we can find the nine-foot Nicolaj Coster Waldau. Now they're taller playing. when they're in their beetleborg morphing. That's right. When they when they morph, they're twelve feet tall. Anamorphs. Nine. 
Yes, the the anamorph mode that they are capable of going into. The um, Egyptian Megazord. Um, <laughs> if they had formed some kind of god Megazord at the end of Defeat Set, that would have been totally awesome. That would have been cool. That would have been great. Ra would have been like the center chess piece. That would have been awesome. Yes. Uh, yeah, that's the... So, dear listeners, if you are unaware or unfamiliar, as you are very likely to be, with 2016's Gods of Egypt, a... Lionsgate joint directed by Alex Proyas dumped in February because they absolutely knew they had a stinker on their hands. Uh, the 2016 Gods of Egypt is perhaps one of the, it's definitely one of the largest flops in, in the last five years. Uh, it lost a tremendous amount of money for the studio, which apparently was mitigated somewhat by the fact they'd received so many tax credits from Australia that they only, even though the movie cost $140 million, they only had about $10 million in the game. Uh, so so apparently Lionsgate had several significant write-offs to, to mitigate the disaster, but still, um, you're talking about a lot of money getting thrown on screen that never really went anywhere. But uh, Gods of Egypt, uh, I love the description. Uh, I, I watched this on my Plex server. And the description was, for the entirety of this two, almost two-and-a-half-hour film, a thief goes on, an Egypt, uh, goes on an adventure across Egypt. And I think that's it. I think that's all it said. <laughs> a thief goes on an adventure with the god, of Osir- the god Osiris across Egypt. That was the entire description for this film. And I find that incredibly, incredibly apt. Because... To try and summarize this movie beyond just the fact that it takes place in Egypt, quote-unquote, not really sure. It has a guy in it who's a thief, at least at the beginning, not really sure. And it just kind of goes crazy from there. Um, but yeah, it's, it's something else. I, I really don't even know exactly what to say. So let's let's just get right into it. Let's not even beat around the bush. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and say, listener, um, you're not going to want to watch this movie. Um, you might, after we're done talking about it, just sort of see for yourself the train wreck. But postmortem, if you will. Yeah, you know, just to, you know, just to watch and be like, hmm, oh, the mystery mm, of Alex Price's mm. career. Yeah, what happened, right? The final hours. Um, <laughs> Uh, I mean, like, to give evidence of the fact that, A, nobody gives a shit about this movie, and B, nobody knows what to say about it, the Rotten Tomatoes, like, little consensus under the critics thing, where it usually says, like, hey, you know, an overbloated mess or whatever, this is what it says. Look on gods of Egypt, ye filmgoers, in despair. Nothing beside remains. <gasps> Round the decay of this colossal oh. wreck, boundless and bare. The lone and level sands stretch far away. Literary reference. Yeah, like, like that's all of the poor, you know, whatever poor intern was forced to put that text there, this is all they could come up with, right? Because, like, what are you going to say about this movie? Um, So on Rotten Tomatoes, our our arbiter of all things film, uh, it has a 16%. On the tomato meter, which is not the lowest that we've seen, but it's certainly not very good. And that's out of uh, around 200 critic reviews. 
and a 37% audience score out of about 32,000 audience reviews, which is better, but still not great. So the the basic synopsis, if, if we're just going to try and break it down, is that Set, the god of darkness and death, uh, kills his brother, usurps the throne of Egypt, which apparently has been peaceful for centuries, um, this uh, begins a reign of terror, rips out the eyes of Horus, uh, who was the son of Osiris, intended to be king, and uh, leaves him in despair and darkness while he takes over the kingdom, and Horus is eventually rescued by a thief who is attempting to resurrect his dead girlfriend, and he believes that Horus is the guy to do the job. So he steals Horus's eye back, and they go on an adventure across Egypt to save the world. And that's it. Uh, this is, is sword and sandals filmmaking at its highest level, possibly. But in a lot of ways, I'd rather watch like Ator the Fighting Eagle than this. Because at least Ator the Fighting Eagle knows what it is, which is garbage. And it's okay with that. It leans into it. It says, yes, this is what we're doing here. Let's have fun. And and Gods of Egypt, I think, would benefit from a bit of that. But we'll get there. All right. Uh, so uh, a couple of reviews. I have a bunch here. I don't think I'm going to read them all because they, 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 they really just all say, they all say the same thing, uh, which is this movie makes no sense and it's a mess and it's way too self-indulgent for its own good. Um. Uh, Alan Shurstel from The Village Voice. Uh, as bad movies go, this one at least is all in on its badness. Right? Absolutely. Uh, David Sims, and this was from a mildly positive review, but still, uh, I think this grabs with some stuff. Gods of Egypt gets lost in its own budget, constantly shooting to outdo its visual grandeur, but forgetting to lend it any depth. But there's mad ambition at work. And that I would agree with. Uh, Proyas is absolutely swinging. For something. At, at, he's swinging at a fence. I don't think it's the home run fence. I think it might be like the foul ball side. I want everybody maybe, to maybe get a foul ball baseline. so they have a baseball to take home. <laughs> yeah, like he's not swinging for a home run at all, but he's swinging as hard as he can to try and make contact. And it's it just doesn't work. Uh, Kyle Smith, the New York Post... This is the battlefield earth of sword and sorcery movies, which is just like the wickedest burn ever. That's battlefield earth is a travesty film. That's I don't a, even. Know. I mean, ooh. yeah, I don't even know if I'd go that far. I'm totally honest. Like it's bad. I don't know if it's that bad. Battlefield Earth. Aside from the fact that Battlefield Earth is like ninety five percent Dutch angles, just not. I mean, just constant Dutch angles for no reason. Just yeah. Tilt the camera forty five degrees, no reason. Uh the the I cannot recommend Rift Tracks enough in my life. Mm, uh mm-hmm. the Rift Tracks for Battlefield Earth is probably one of the funniest things I've ever heard. Um I believe it was Bill Corbett, Mike Nelson, and Kevin Murphy all together riffing on it. Oh, and Lord. they they go hard for the Dutch angles because it's it's super funny. It's it's so infuriating. it's maddening to watch because it it's not motivated by anything. It's it's just tilt the camera. It, it just doesn't make sense. And this movie has a little bit of that too, but it's not quite there. 
All right, Adam Graham from the Detroit News. No one is confusing gods of Egypt with strong storytelling. But for a mindless whir of crazy visuals, you can do a lot worse. All right. Uh, Ignashi Vishnevetsky from the AV Club. A wannabe franchise starter that feels like it was adapted from a tabletop role-playing game <laughs> with strict rules that need to be repeatedly stated out loud <laughs> and a bestiary of creatures. Which I thought Ouch. was perfect. Um, you know, this this definitely feels like it could fit into that, you know. It's like, uh, I call Osiris my plus one god of light to uh, deal damage to set, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, Alonzo Duraldi from The Rap might have merited a so bad it's good schadenfreude fan base had it maintained the unintentional laughs of the first ten minutes. And that is not a lie. The first ten minutes of this movie are hilarious. Um, but instead, it skids into dullness, thus negating the camp classic that it so often verges on becoming. And if anything, that is my biggest gripe with it, is that this could have been a new sort of like clash of the Titans, right? Goofy, fun, a little bit silly on the surface, but a heart behind it, a little, you know, a little bit of drive, you know, and I, and I, that's not to demean clash of Titans. I think clash of Titans, you know, the 81, the, the Harry Hamlin, you know, this movie, you needed to be able to see the Adidas running shorts beneath people's tunics a couple of times. Like you need that. Because it's it, it reminds you what you're in for. Like, I love Clash of Titans during that first big uh, destruction of the Argosians. And, 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 like, you know, people are, like, flipping and, you know, running around corners and slipping and stuff. And, like, people are wearing wristwatches. Dudes got running shorts on underneath their tunics. You see, like, you know, tennis shoes and stuff. And it's like, you know, you know what you're in for. And that's fine. Right. And it's good. And this movie needed some of that because it just takes itself so seriously. And it's like, dude, you have Gerard Butler turning mm. into a nine and a half or 12 foot tall armored dog man with wings. What are you doing, Alex? Brooks? Stop taking it so seriously. Just be fun. And, you know, and it's it's just like, wow, just wow. Because, uh, honestly, like, Gerard Butler knows what he's doing. He knows what kind of movie this is. And he is just taking hunks of scenery, and he is just chewing them up in those mighty jowls and spitting it back out all over I the place. I couldn't understand a word he said. <laughs> I mean, full-on Scottish brogue. No attempt whatsoever to have any kind of accent mitigation. I don't know what is happening with the accents in this movie. I don't think anyone cared. It sort of and reminded fine, me you know, of like old Hollywood blockbusters that had a bunch of white people playing these epic characters. Yep. Like Ben Hur. <laughs> yeah, oh totally. But yet yeah. it was it was like a Hallmark Channel script of Ben Hur with lots of special effects. <laughs> Lots of yeah. really exceptionally bad special effects. It's, yes, yes, very much so. Um, so the common problems before we get into the Hallmark special effects and, mm. and the script, of which are all issues. Oh, God. 
So shoddy special effects, most common thing I saw for sure. People like, what are the, what is the deal with this? Why is this being shot like this? Uh, number two, just a boring plot that doesn't really go anywhere. Uh, three, too long, way too long. Uh, this movie is like two hours and 18 minutes, I think. Which is so, two hours and 18 whoa. minutes too long. <laughs> <laughs> um, obviously, the issue of representation, we can go ahead and throw that out on the table now. This, A, I completely understand, because this is a movie focusing on the mythological history of Egypt, and it features zero Egyptians of any kind at any level of the production. Yeah. And... One, nobody was complaining about that with the 2011 Clash of Titans that came out, which is obviously the reason why this movie was made, because uh, they were somehow able to turn the Sam Worthington-led Clash of Titans movie into like a pseudo-franchise and get a sequel out of it, and that movie was garbage. Like, hot, straight out well, of you know how the I canned feel about garbage. Sam Worthington. Yeah, I mean, and I don't, I don't hate Sam Worthington, but that movie was just straight butt cheeks. Mm. Like, it is hard. I mean, and and you've got people in that movie that are working it, right? Like Liam Neeson, he's trying to do his thing as Zeus. You've got Ray Fiennes over there, just you know, like all hunched over and trying to be Lord Voldemort without the money, um, you know. And it's just that movie, uh, completely unnecessary. The original Clash of Titans is fine; it holds up just fine. I uh, didn't need to do another version of it, but nobody was screaming about, you know, Grecian representation in that film. But I think one of the things that if, if you don't see the movie and you see gods of Egypt and then you see like Gerard Butler on the, on the, the poster, you're going to be like, what? But this doesn't take place in Egypt. I don't know where it takes place. I don't know when it takes place. There's nothing historical about this. You might as well just take like the loose concept of a place where gods lived that kind of had pyramids, and if you want to call it Egypt, fine. But uh, you know, you might as well call it like Egypt Land, or Egyptonia. Yeah, like, <laughs> like it doesn't matter because this there this is as far removed from from historical Egypt as you can possibly get, apart from the things that are named Egyptian things. So I, if you watch the film. You don't want to see anything represented properly in this movie because it's just going to screw it up real bad. So I, I understand it. I think it certainly would have been a stronger film if they had considered the implications of that well in advance. But it, it wouldn't have mattered. Like having accurately represented individuals in this film from that culture would have made zero difference to its quality because you're not going to save this ship. It's yeah. not happening. <laughs> Right. It's just not going to work. But it was a legitimate beef. Uh, and if anything, it was the the toxic word of mouth around the film regarding that issue of, of representation and whitewashing doomed it to failure. Uh, sort of like Ghost in the Shell, which had a similar issue happen a couple years after this, which I really like Ghost in the Shell, uh, the, the Scarlett Johansson. Well, that is one. really good source material. So it was bound to be marginally successful. Yeah. I haven't seen it, but I have seen it's, the Ghost in the Shell movies. Right. It, it's it's fine. It is by no means good. It changes some of the elements of the story for no reason. Probably just to be different. But it's got B. Takeshi in it. I mean, it can't be that bad. I always I like it, looking at him. 
Yeah, you get to watch him, you know, do some cool stuff. But in any case, it's a similar issue. Just, just sort of that bad word of mouth, uh, I think, you know, sort of doomed the project. And, and Proyas has, has been notably prickly about the response to the film, especially critically. He had a, a very long post on Facebook. I think you can see Yeah, he it. said a lot of things in that. He was very angry uh, about the critical treatment of the film. Because I, I think... Despite the fact the film takes itself far too seriously, I think Proyas understood what they were trying to do, which was to make a sort of goofy, big-budget, sword-and-sandals thing. Um, but what we got to see didn't, didn't necessarily have that happen. Yeah. Um, so, in any case, let's, uh, let's get into our debrief here and, and just, just launch in, because there's really nowhere else that we can go but down <laughs> down into the underworld where giant tooth worms in the clouds are trying to kill us all wow and wow um, <laughs> and uh, so i mentioned in knowing that i i generally appreciate alex proyas's uh title sequences right i, I like Not his anymore. Credit sequences <laughs> Not in this one. Uh, as I said, just 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 butt cheeks all the way down for these. Uh, it looks like the the font from uh, Spawn in 1994, just like the flames roiling behind the font for no reason really. Uh, and then the title treatment for the actual Gods of Egypt is is atrocious. Is it supposed to be rock? I guess it is. But uh, and then just flames behind it. it just looks very '90s, very stark, very afterthought, right? Like we didn't have a plan, and we didn't know what we wanted to do. So we're just gonna do this really, this dumb-looking thing. <laughs> it's just—it's nothing. Like it, it's a bad title sequence because there isn't one. I just there's nothing here. And then we begin as every terrible movie should with voiceover from an unidentified character talking about how he might remember the story this way, maybe, but, you know, I'm going to tell you what I remember. and Which is all lies. <laughs> which I can't verify, I guess. But I love how he just goes ahead and straight tells us that but these aren't like the gods that you would think of, right? They were actually like nine feet tall, and then they could turn into all kinds of strange beasts, and then they got to be 12 feet. Like, also, I've had like, some drinks, and I may be making this up. <laughs> I just, I love that it's so specific in this. Like, there's no, I mean, we're about to see this anyway, right? We're going to see this happen in a minute in the most ridiculous way possible. So why tell us, like, oh, and, you know, like, they're also, like, super tall, and they have gold <clears throat> for blood, which, okay, why <laughs> does it make, who cares and and then you know we get the basic setup of of Osiris versus Set which which is a a classic Egyptian story right this idea of the the ascension of Horus and and Set being upset about it all all very accurate all you know you know for a movie that doesn't want to be identified as Egyptian it it sure is trying really hard to be identified as Egyptian because it's yeah. using one of the arguably the most famous story from 
Egyptian mythology, which is the, the ascension of Horus. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't know. I, I mean, I generally don't like films that do this kind of like voiceover lead and narration to begin with. I think it's lazy. It, it, you, you know, a movie that did it really well, and it's kind of in the same vein, at least with Egypt, uh, is The Mummy. That yeah, popped into yeah. my head when I was listening to this mm-hmm. narration. I was like, wow, you know, a movie that did a much better job <laughs> was The Mummy. That had a, a really nice little narrated intro with... Um, mm-hmm. uh, as Oded Fair. Oded Fair, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he did. He does. There's the intro a wonderful, for sexy voice. Both of the first. So perfect. Oh god, oh, god, he's dude, like, fantastic. Yeah, we watched the first Mummy a few weeks ago. Uh, we showed that to to my kids. My daughter's I not a big. Regularly. <laughs> yeah, my daughter's not a big fan of mummies, but we we kind of got her through it. Um, she just doesn't like the the embalming side of it. Like she just cannot. She's like, I just can't process that information like somebody being you know either killed that way or having that done to their bodies after their death and and so we kind of like you know the mummy doesn't focus on that at least the stephen summers one doesn't but gosh damn if brendan fraser isn't just the most roguish the fact that that he didn't get the chance to like i'm not gonna say be indiana jones but just to to sort of be that level of star, sort of what Chris Pratt is now, yeah. uh, I think is is really sad because he had all of that just, potential. Yeah, it's just not there. But the first uh, two although, mummy you know, movies are, the first are fantastic. Two mummies, yeah, and even you know, Tomb of the Dragon Emperor, I I, I don't loathe. It's I couldn't ridiculous. It. Uh, the fact that Rachel Weisz didn't come back is really rough. I mean, I like Maria Bello, but mm, no, uh, yeah, it just you know he he seemed poised to do a lot of things. And obviously a lot has come out now about his career and and things that happened to him and stuff that he attributes, you know, the, the failings in his career to it's, it's very difficult for me as an outsider to verify, but it makes a ton of sense. But yeah, Frazier's just, he, he owns that movie and he does just a fantastic job with it. Um, But yeah, I mean like that movie works because Again, Summers, for all of his faults, I mean, let's not forget about Van Helsing, but for all of his faults, he knows what that is, right? He he understands the movie that he's making, and this movie would benefit from a little bit of that, uh, for sure. But yeah, so the, the voice over here, you know, it serves to establish the central conflict a bit. Um, again, I think most of that reads from the first major scene of the movie anyway, so I don't really know why it matters, but... Mo- eventually we find out that the voiceover narration is coming from Beck, the human character played by Brenton Thwaites, a uh, young Australian actor who, who's just been poised on the verge of fame. Dude has been in, like, this movie, uh, the, the fifth Pirates of the Caribbean movie, the most recent one, I think. He was in that one. Um, and is just that where I know his face? Mm, Mm. He was in The Giver as well, hmm. um, which which uh, I never saw. My wife saw it, and she enjoyed it mostly. Uh, it's ju- it was one with Jeff Bridges and Meryl Streep in it, so I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's okay. Um, but he was the main character in that. Uh, he's been in, in quite a few things, but he's definitely one of those, like, right on the cusp of being, like, a thing. And then the movies he winds up being in just don't really go anywhere. You know, because that last Pirates of the Caribbean movie was like 
disaster. Really bad. Really yeah, really it bad. was not good. Uh, I didn't hate it. I mean, uh, I'll always watch Javier Bardem do stuff. Uh, you know, so whatever. But um, yeah, so he's he's kind of our lead human character here, and I guess we have to have one, even though the movie's called Gods of Egypt. We can't have a god be a central character. We still have to have you know the regular guy, and he's our regular guy. Even though so Thor we, proved that you don't need to do that. No, you can. I mean, if you make the god interesting, you can absolutely have the god be your main character. It's totally okay. God, I love. Thor. But the problem is, yeah, yeah, the Thor movies are really good. Well, not all of them. The first one's fine. The second one is meh, and the third one is brilliant. So, uh, but hey, you got to be able to get to three to get to the brilliance, and uh, Gods of Egypt isn't going to get that shot. So we uh, we come out of the the and they're doing like the hieroglyphics on the wall while they're doing the voiceover and then we do a a jarring match cut between like the the Nile River on the hieroglyphic wall to like the real Nile River and I've gone back and I've slowed it down and it does match like you know the the angle and curvature of the rivers is the same but since but it's you're going a terrible from cut. that it's a horrible cut dude like cuz you're going from that super dark black with like the obviously fake lighting and then it's like bright CG, like you know, horrible CG. Yeah, like rendered out on my my home iMac CG, and, and it just premiere. cuts to it <laughs> stock cut. Um, and it it just it just looks terrible. I like I said, it matches. Like it's absolutely a match cut. It is exactly executed in the way that you would want to, but it just looks terrible. It's it's awful. It's anyway. a bad idea. Yeah, it's it's a horrible way to to segment to to switch between those worlds. You didn't have to do it. And so then we're introduced to Beck, and Beck is uh, immediately stealing, right? But not in like a. It's like Aladdin. Yeah, I mean that's immediately it's, what I thought of. It's was taken Aladdin, directly from Aladdin. <laughs> but without any of the charm or any of the the sort of sweetness of Aladdin, because he's not stealing food, he's stealing a dress for his girlfriend. A fancy which, lady's dress. A fancy lady dress for the coronation of the gods. So you're going to wear this stolen dress to a coronation where a bunch of deities are going to be. Smart. Good thinking, right? Yeah. Like, what could go wrong? Uh, and, and he just... it The scene after it where he's talking about their hopes and their dreams. Um, I'm just like, what? Um, and I... What? I've, I lost my my mind early in this film. Um, but can like, I'm, I gotta take a minute to talk about the costumes because this dress yeah. is the focus of that scene. Mm -hmm. And so it, it highlighted for me something that I then saw for the rest of the film, which is the way that everyone is dressed. And the costuming reminds me so much of the Elizabeth Taylor Cleopatra movie. Mm -hmm. which is where yep. I was getting like the old Hollywood glamour thing from, I think. Right. <clears throat> but the costumes are terrible. They are so impractical. They're so over mm -hmm. the top. And the only reason that that stands out, especially in that first scene with the dress is that he is in literal rags. Yeah. Like filthy rags. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and she is wearing a a a whale boned corseted silky gown with like Victoria's Secret level push up. And I'm like, this is just not 
this doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> it just it was it was immediately a problem. I don't know. It and it set me off to look at the costuming for the rest of the film and I just don't like it. I feel like it was caught between we want to have these really traditional kind of, you know, Egyptian inspired clothes items and then we want to have these really over the top kind of Bob Mackie share costumes. I don't mm. know. It the first thing that drove me crazy. It it does not balance at all. Um and again, this is a hyper real take on Egypt. Right? I don't think at any point during the production design and process anybody was particularly concerned about accuracy or authenticity. But what it leads to, I mean, if you're not even going to to sort of ground yourself in something, what it leads to is chaos. It's just anything and goes. There's right? no Any, visual coherence to this right. piece. <laughs> yeah. And and it doesn't get any better with the gods costuming either. Oh, my God. No. It just makes no sense. Um, it seemed like the only directive to the designers was you have to have something on them that references the animal or animals that they were associated with. That's it. Anything else, just just go for it. As long as it's sheer and silky and maybe has like a weird color behind it, go However, for it. However, you, when you need an eye patch, you must find a tattered piece of cloth. You cannot yes, have an actual um, eye patch. Yes, a hunk of leather that you pulled <laughs> off your shoe. That's what you're going to wear. <laughs> Because cause Nikolaj Kosterwaldau must have the finest of leather shoes Jimmy for his whispers. Um, So I did want to mention one thing before we move on from, from this awful, awful opening sequence that does nothing to build character, build sympathy, or, or even build the world. Um, so, Brenton Thwaites, Beck, is supposed to be some kind of master thief like literally the best but he literally gets right? caught the but first he, time we see him he literally just grabs this well he smells it first which is weird <laughs> right he or it looks like he's smelling it but he grabs it off the rack in the most obvious way like he's he's literally making eye contact with the shopkeeper while he is stealing it and then just just runs away and what I expected when I saw this the first time was that, oh, okay, this is Aladdin. We're just doing an Aladdin bit. We're going to show that he's, you know, thief with a heart of gold, only steals what he has to, blah, blah, blah. We're going to see him evade some cops and do whatever. And everything was being set up to be that. Right? Because, like, three people come running out of the shop after him, and it's like, oh, we're going to get a cool little, we'll see that he's agile, he's climbing walls, he's flipping over stuff, whatever. No, we get one shot of him hunch running through a street with the dress behind him in the most awkward way that I can possibly imagine. He's he's literally like feet akimbo, just like half squatted running between people. And then we immediately cut to him arriving home safely. No questions. Asked. No consequences. No consequences. And I'm like... Wait, what? In ancient Egypt, you can be a bad person, I guess. And, <laughs> and so he just kind of gets away. And, and you know, we we talked about that a little bit with um, 
the snowman, how, you know, you could feel the creaks in the editing process in the snowman because a lot of characters would just, there'd be too many moves between point A and point B, right? You like, you'd, you'd see a person leave a door here and then all of a sudden they're in this other location Scene and you can't missing. really link it together. <laughs> And so in one of the articles I read with Proyas, he mentioned that his initial cut for this, right, the first one he turned into the studio, as a final cut, not as an assembly, but like as a, like, this is my ideal cut of the film, was two hours and 45 minutes. Oh. Which I can't, I, in no universe can I process this movie being almost three hours long. But according to Proyas, that two hour and 45 minute cut rocked. I would love uh, to see it. I kind of would, right? Like, that's where I'm at now. Because I'm like, I'm betting that there was a lot more stuff here. Like, a lot more I stuff. I bet it's all real bad. I'm sure it's not it. good. <laughs> it's not going to change anything. I'm not going to like these characters anymore by the time it's played out. But at least it would make sense. At least what they're doing would make sense. Because it doesn't here. Um, and so he gives her the dress. It very quickly gets us to the coronation, which I guess is like the next day. I don't know, but I'm like, why did we start with these kids? Right. Uh, again, the movie's called gods of Egypt. I'm fine with starting with the gods of Egypt. We can introduce Beck later, but so we're, we're introduced to Nicholas Coster of old Uh, I'm just going to call him Jamie Lannister. Fuck it. Uh, I don't, uh, Jamie I'm going to call him Jimmy Whispers because I've never seen Game of Thrones. <laughs> so <laughs> I only so Jamie, know the bad lip reading. <laughs> yes, exactly. And that's all you need to know. Uh, don't waste your time on Game of Thrones. It doesn't end well. But so so Jamie Lannister is, is knocked out in bed after a night of reveling. Uh, apparently he killed a lion, which, you know, is, is very significant. But I would have um, liked to have seen that. Yeah, like that's, that's interesting. Can we start uh, it there? He killed a lion, and then we're introduced very rapidly to, I, I guess you could call it this film's central trick. Like, the thing that it does to visually distinguish itself. And that is the the dual size, right? The gods are big. They're not human-sized. They are much, much taller. Nine and he feet has tall. the little people give him a sponge bath. That's right. And and all of his little servants, all of his little humans are there to to wake him and get him prepared for his coronation. And given how adept Proyas is in so many of his other projects at character, at helping us understand characters, this confuses the living crap out of me. Because it's obvious that we're supposed to read him as like your typical irresponsible kind of an idiot kind of like thor but, yeah you know like irresponsible <laughs> idiot but but lovable and well-meaning god but it just doesn't work it does no. not come off that way he just seems cocky and and idiotic right like he doesn't know what's going on around him and he's supposed to <coughs> he's supposed to be horus he's the god who sees all Right, like, like it's literally his shtick is like I know all and see all, but in this one he's just kind of an idiot, and and I I was really legitimately surprised by that. Like, I understand if you want him to be like 
and and we can argue that that Thor has found the best balance of this, where he is extremely good at what he does, also kind of a simpleton, right? Yeah. And that's okay. But in this one, he doesn't seem especially good at anything, also a simpleton, right? Much, much harder to reconcile. And also and so, kind of a dick. Yeah, I... This opening interaction, so so after he we're introduced to the thing and he goes in his bath and he's, uh, what is it, Hathor, is that her name? Mm-hmm. They call her the goddess he's, of love. I always yeah. thought Hathor was the goddess of sky. Um, there there are a lot too. of the gods. There's goddess. a lot of, a, yeah, it doesn't really matter. You can, there's lots. Gotta of wear a lot of hats when you're a god. <laughs> That's right. There's lots going on. But so we're, we're introduced. They've obviously got some kind of romantic past and he. She's the Aphrodite. I mean, right. this is so, this is so far removed from actual Egyptian mythology. It's so westernized. It's so very white. And it's so based on Greek tropes that don't even exist in Egyptian mythology. Um, right. So you, I mean, she is, she's just Aphrodite. And that's how she behaves. And that's just how I thought of her for the rest of the film. Yeah, it's it's really hard because my daughter, as we were watching a little bit of this, she was like, wait, I thought she was the goddess of love. Why is she going to the underworld? And I was like, well, she's also the goddess of the sky and she like helped people find their way to the underworld and stuff. But they don't really want to deal with that. They just want you to think about her being the goddess of love. And, and she even she like being 11, she's just like, that doesn't make sense at all i would yeah it doesn't right. just it doesn't. you are correct <laughs> and so you know the coronation itself is stupid <laughs> they it just it feels so much like a it feels like the star wars prequels it just this was shot on a green screen no one's looking of, at anything. Nothing's. No one's looking at anything. There are no clear eye lines. Everything is just, here's a tennis ball hanging on a stick. Uh, look in this vague direction and, and know that stuff is happening. It's just, you know, it, it's it's the worst kind of big budget franchise filmmaking. It, and maybe, and this may actually be one of the last major remnants of it, to be totally honest because marvel even though they do many of these same things they have found production tricks to to sort of hide and mask when they're doing it but this it's just super obvious the lighting's not great the lighting is bad the color is bad they just made everything yellow everything's just yellow it's processed through a yellow filter which is not even accurate for the type of sun that you would expect to see well, in not, this environment, it's not you know? that golden brown orange. I mean, I, you know, I'm I'm probably going to bring up the movie again, but I really was hoping this would look kind of like the Mummy, <laughs> just in terms of like the color palette mm-hmm. and yeah. No, I'm not. I'm not even sure they actually have a shot in this movie that was legitimately shot at a desert. No, like they like where they took a camera to the desert and just filmed sand. Like, I'm pretty sure it's all just CG sand. And it's like, you don't have to do that with sand. Sand, it can look good in any circumstance. You just get in a helicopter and you go film sand and you've got it. 
but so in any case, like this coronation scene, it's it looks like a set that was designed to face one direction. The camera only points in that direction. And it just, it feels so artificial, right? Nothing about this feels grounded. And it doesn't have to, I guess. It's a fantasy. It doesn't have to be grounded in reality. But it doesn't feel very textured <laughs> or or crafted or... It just doesn't seem real in any good way. <laughs> Like, it doesn't seem real as in actually existing, not as a fantasy right. construction. Because, you know, the unreality and, 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 you know, big bombastic look of the film, I'm actually fine with. Mm -hmm. But it's just... No, I'm, I'm fine with scale. That's fine. It's good. <laughs> Everything just feels empty. You know, it, it feels hollow. And I think that it just doesn't read very powerfully on screen. You know, even with all of the um, the CG bombast, um, I, I think you can feel the effort. I mean, there's there's definitely work going on here. There's ambition on display, but it's all kind of for naught. It just doesn't it doesn't create the sense of awe and wonder that I think you need to establish these incredible characters. And, and ideally, that's what you're wanting to do here. You know, I'm thinking of this this coronation scene. You know, the first 15 minutes of this movie are very striking <clears throat> for a variety of reasons. Mm. But that sweeping shot right as we go to the big, you know, sound stage <laughs> of all of the gods of Egypt on it, it reminds me again of the opening of The Mummy where you have a bunch of those, you know, sweeping grand shots of ancient Egypt with all of these you know, ridiculous statues and things that you know did not exist in real life but it's fun to think about it from a fantasy perspective but somehow that shot felt more real it felt more grounded it didn't feel didn't feel soulless i guess yeah i guess it's just a lesson in how special effects for their own sake you know unmotivated unprompted and ungrounded they just don't do anything for you. You know, it's just, you might as well just have a painting there. It's the same effect. Um, and in some ways, I'd probably prefer that in a lot of ways. It would be superior. But so I guess in terms of plot, this coronation is, is the inciting event, right? Where, you know, we talked a little bit last week about how, you know, the inciting event of knowing doesn't really come until about 40 minutes into the movie, which is, is kind of its greatest flaw, in my opinion. This one doesn't beat around the bush. Uh, immediately set, played with just, I'm going to do what I did in 300, but without the abs. Um, Gerard yeah. Butler. <laughs> this is 2016 uh, Gerard Butler. Yeah, this is 2016 Gerard Butler. He's had far too much have beer my dad to have those abs. <laughs> uh, his arms his arms and shoulders look great. Like he's, oh, yeah. He's def he definitely He's a total out. beefcake. Um, but so Horace is about to be crowned. Set appears. Uh, we have to mention that Osiris is played by none other than classic Aussie actor Brian. I'm motherfucking NFX Brown um, <laughs> because I haven't seen that dude in 
years, like literal decades, and here he is playing Osiris, god <laughs> of Egypt, and he gets a he's got a little soul patch. It's just adorable. Uh, so if you know if you don't know who Brian Brown was, there were a series of FX and FX two. In uh, the 80s, it was Brian Brown, a popular Australian actor, and Brian Dennehy, the two Brians, just going for it in, I guess, what you could call a sort of Mission Impossible light, where a professional special effects guy creates masks and comes up with all kinds of like cool I, I, movie special effects tricks to like capture criminals and stuff. They're great. The FX movies are awesome. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I haven't seen them in forever, but I loved them when I was a kid. Watched them all the time. But uh, so he's here and, and there's really there's a who's who of, of like decent, solid Australian actors. Uh, Proyas, again, is, is this entire movie was shot and made in Australia. Um, just like pretty much whether all of his like other work. Whether they like it or not. <laughs> whether they wanted to be there or not. And so he's definitely pulling from, you know, some Australian actors of the time. But so uh, Osiris is killed uh, by <clears throat> Set. Set, you know, has, has arranged a coup. He's brought soldiers in. He's very angry about being out in the sand. He's really upset I, about that. I didn't understand his, his villainy at all. I understand the story. I understand what's going on. But just... Nothing motivated what happened <laughs> for all of that violence, that sudden violence and sudden invasion. It was, it was just, it was sudden. It was a big change. Yeah. yeah. Cause he shows up and, you know, he's doing the whole like, Hey, good to see everybody. I had to go through the crowd. It took like a day. <laughs> oh, I mean, and he's dressed um, in black. So that is a clue that he's a bad yeah, guy. Big clue. Big clue. And, so we find out later that, you know, it's, again, as you mentioned, there's a lot of, like, we're going to sort of switch this up to be a little bit more like the Greek myths. And so it, it seemed like what they were doing was kind of setting it up in the, the Hades sort of space, right, where he was cast out, right? Osiris got to stay by the Nile where it's verdant and green and beautiful, and here, you know, Set had to, to go out into the harshness of the desert, walk on the burning sands alone, unable to have children, which is another weird thing that he can't sire children. And so he feels slighted by the other gods because he's, he's you know, unable to produce an heir. And uh, just, just very weird motivations uh, and not even necessarily bad motivations i mean they're fine but they're just not explained nor are they explored yeah. and gerard butler doesn't really ever do anything with them he pretty much just plays a fairly one note kind of smarmy angry guy for the whole movie mm -hmm. right like he he acts kind of funny you know he sort of like has little jokes uh later on they get caught inside of his uh his pyramid and he's like well that's gonna be a fun time for you guys i'm out and it's like what what okay <laughs> uh it it's just it's kind of baffling at its in its choices you know uh now i gotta he, take i gotta take a minute to, to mention 
Chadwick Boseman. Rest in yes. Peace. And if there is, is one... the best thing about this movie. He is so good as Thoth. If there is, if there is one thing that will give this movie life and, and bring this back for people is that we had... We had so little output from him in, in his career, uh, which is a travesty. Um, I think he was poised, not even poised, he was one of the, the finest actors of this generation and capable of incredibly powerful performance, subtle performance, careful performance. And given that his output was so limited in the time that we had with Chadwick Boseman, um, this movie may have a life simply because he is in it. And people who are fascinated by his career want to see everything that he did will will find this film. He did so much with so much terrible dialogue. Like his lines just They're isolated. Awful. They're awful. They're so bad. But he managed to take that awfulness and morph it into this really charming comedic character that is not not entirely played for laughs, not entirely just a joke, but definitely kind of the lighthearted thing that carries part of the film. Um, mm-hmm. And from from the moment he, he came on screen, it's like, ooh, not only did I just like him in general, um, I was excited to see how he treated this character, and, and it was wonderful. Just really, really good. Yes, he plays the God of Wisdom, which we're, we're introduced to all of these characters during the coronation. Like, quite literally, there is a guy with the camera just Michael baying itself around <laughs> him for absolutely no reason, um, introducing all of the gods. And, and so we see there's, uh, what is Nephthiri, the, the goddess of protection, uh, Hathor, goddess of love, whatever, Memphis. Uh, Osiris, Memphis, um, and then, then Thoth, who is the, the god of wisdom, right? Represented by the Ibis or, or the baboon, either one. Uh, his costuming actually has a little bit of both in them. And he gets, he drops the baboon reference later. Um, mostly his headdress has got a bunch of Ibises in it, although it's shaped like a brain. So again, just like, what? Okay, fine. This is, <laughs> this is whatever you thought, Mr. Costume Designer. It's sure. Um, but he's, he's great. He, He's obviously, I guess the coolest thing about him is that he is visibly, obviously, and perfectly okay with being absolutely above everyone else, or at least believing that he is. And he plays that aloofness so well. He just has absolute disdain for everyone else because he's better than them. And it it just, it's great. It's really good. And you get a little glimpse of it right in the beginning, but he kind of did just disappears and shows up a little, you know, about two thirds of the way through the movie and has a, a pretty decent stint. Um, but so the coronation goes badly. Uh, Set and Osiris fight. Uh, we're introduced to their weapons, which, which are based on like real quote unquote, you know, the, the types of spears and weaponry that we see in, in, in ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs. Um, of course they're all CGified in this one and they like, you know, they have like a little short staff version and then like the big blades come out of the side. It's honestly all of the costuming in this felt like just somehow a shittier version of Stargate. Like it really just 
I, I just kept looking at it being like, dude, Stargate was this 20 years ago, really and this makes Stargate. Stargate look... Yeah, and this makes Stargate look really good by comparison. And Stargate is not a good movie. I love it. I, I It may be one of my favorite movies ever. God, you said God 20 knows years I, ago. You mean 30 years ago? Uh, well, it, well, it would have been 20 years from when this came out. <laughs> That's true. Right? That's true. So it was like well, 95, wasn't it? Is it Stargate 95? It doesn't uh, Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> It's so, getting up whatever. there, though. It's like 25 yes. years old. Yes. Oh, absolutely. It's like 25 years old. Um, but, I mean, Stargate, it was all practical. Like, they built all the things. They did. It was one of the first, like, you know, CG, like, morph shots as one of the helmets changed and stuff. But, like, a lot of the Egyptian, you know, sort of themed items in Stargate look better than this. Like, way, way better. better than this. Way better. <laughs> and and it's just it just it's so actually stargate sg1 episodes look better than some of this it's some of it yeah some of it for sure and they're right, definitely so, better uh, edited yeah oh god yeah the editing is just there's a lot of really unmotivated edits in this um Proyas established with his big budget filmmaking in irobot that he really loves spinning the camera around things it's kind of his signature action move now and i sort of hate it um, he loves spinning the camera around while characters are moving in the opposite direction on axis. And then this one introduces the additional complication of speed ratcheting like a Zack Snyder film. And boy golly, it is not good. Um, it had the potential to be good, but whatever rotoscoping and compositing they were doing... because The thing about Zack Snyder's speed ratcheting is that he, at least in 300, and in most of his movies, I guess really up until, really up until Watchmen, um, he does it legit, right? Because in 300, when he's doing his like quick zoom, you know, slow down, start, speed up thing, he's doing it all in camera. Like it's being digitally assisted, but it's all real filmed elements. Um, very famously, the way that he did, you know, some of the the really cool slow mo zoom shots in 300 was he just filmed the scenes with three cameras at three different focal depth or you know, focal lengths, right? So he would have a close zoom, a medium zoom, and then a wide, and then all they did was use the computer to stitch those together seamlessly and zoom from one to the other, so that you didn't get. Uh, you know, loss of quality because you were, you know, zooming on the same element. You just zoomed to the new element and made it match. And so you got these super cool effects. And they try to do some things like that in this movie, and it just doesn't work at all um, in, a, in a really unfortunate way. And I don't know. It, it there, there are definitely some choices made with just visual effects throughout the entire film that are to its detriment and and it just it's it's unfortunate because i think from a conceptual standpoint there are some interesting things that you could do but they're not not coming through so the the coronation ends huge fight um and and then it is revealed you know the the beast wars mode that they are all capable of transforming into or at least we we guess really the only two that we see do it are horus and set right like we never get to see Thoth transform. Yep. Memphis, she's got wings, but she never goes like full robo mode. That's true. So so we don't even really know if this is like something they can all do. 
or if it's just something these two guys can do. Just you know, raw can or was that raw raw grows and then gets covered in flame, <laughs> but that's it, <laughs> right? So it, again, in a world that's obviously trying to establish a universe for the purposes of a franchise, like that is so obvious that that's what they're doing here. They are desperate to start a franchise. Some had even said, like, you know, Hunger Games was coming to an end. They needed something else to hang their franchise hat on. Boom, here's your boy, Gods of Egypt. There it is. And well, uh, it, it's, it doesn't even seem to understand its own you know, mythology and universe in any significant way. Because that's what I was doing. Like, later on, Set goes on this rampage where he's just killing all these other gods. And I just was sitting there being like, well, just, just turn into your robot mode. Just fight him. Like, what? Can you not do that? Is it just these two dudes that can do that? But we know it's not because then the other guy that's with Set can turn into, like, the bull mode. Right? Mm -hmm. Didn't he do that? Didn't he turn into, like, the, the bull guy? Yeah. And then he had a bunch of guys that could turn into the bull guys? It's like, well, the turn bull into your bull people. form. Yeah. <laughs> my druid form. yeah <laughs> Torin chieftain level 50 and <laughs> and it, it just i don't know it, it just it bugged me because i was like so you're telling me these ultra powerful gods are just gonna lay down and let this guy roll over them like what do you why what's i, I don't know anyway. um while we were watching i i think i think i cracked at one point and i was like you know Maybe one god against another wouldn't work, but I bet ten gods against one would work. Right. I mean, is he that powerful that they're all just... I mean, they just immediately kneel to him. He's like, kneel before him, and they're like, oh, that's, uh, do you want left <laughs> knee, we're doing right this knee? Now. Um, I mean, should both knees be on the ground? Do you just want one? I mean, like, are you looking for, like, a full-on kneel here? Do I need to curtsy first? Like, I was like... You're all gods. Just fight him. Like, what are you doing? Uh, but whatever. It it really it literally means nothing for the rest of the story. So whatever. Um, so they end up fighting, and the main thing that happens, right, is and and this is is part of the original myth is that Horus, well, I guess in the original Horus just loses one eye, but um, Set rips out Horus's eyes, just rips them right out of his head, and uh, and keeps them because they're shiny. Not in his head, outside of his head. Outside of his head, they're very shiny. Look, kind of like really cool marbles. If they're and, inside his head, and they're he just is a magpie. So that's yeah. why he kept them. Just constantly, he's like, "Ooh, these are shiny." Um, yeah. Then time jump. Uh, ind indeterminate amount of time. Right, we're not told, uh, which I'm fine with. Right, like I don't. I, I was wasn't watching, fine with uh, that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, in this case, it would have been helpful because it obviously... Has it been I mean, days? They, Has it been months? Years? What? It, it's got to be years because they've built an obelisk. <laughs> right? They've built an obelisk that he they specifically say later is 2,200 cubits tall, which would be taller than the Burj Khalifa, if, if that's an accurate measurement. Um... Maybe even taller than that, right? It's just a huge, huge building, and and so they've built this thing on the backs of slaves because that's the that's the downside, right? Osiris was a benevolent god, right? Everybody's equal. We all love each other. Justice, mercy. 
Um, there's this big through line about the underworld in this whole movie that when you go to the underworld, you have to have something to offer or else you don't get in. And that's, and, and like Osiris apparently has, has decided to do away with that where it's, it's your deeds, right? It's what you do in life that matters. You don't have to pay your way into heaven or, or the afterlife, whatever you want to call it. And, and set like immediately puts the kibosh in that. He's like, no, no, no. Everything's about that, that cashola boyo. You're going to bring in that gold. And if you don't got it, when you go to the dead, you're just going to get evaporated or eaten by a cloud with teeth. I don't know. And, and it's just, this, this is like a through line thing. And it's, it's a motivator because obviously, okay, spoiler, Beck's girlfriend's going to die. Like if you couldn't tell her, her chipper outlook on life, even though everything is terrible, pretty much doomed her from the moment you saw her, right? Like she's completely unrealistic as a character. She can't exist in this world. So she's doomed to die. And that's exactly what happens because she works for an asshole played by Dark Rufus City's Sewell. Rufus Sewell. Oh. Always wonderful to see him. Beautiful And he's wonderful in this. in this movie. He is. He doesn't get a lot to do. He's a builder. He's the architect of the, the giant black obelisk at the center of all things. Um, you know, his it's great engineering genius. It's a horrible character. And he's <laughs> wasted. But I still enjoyed everything that he said and did. It's wonderful to see him. Uh, his only character trait is that he likes having an organized desk. <laughs> um, it, it must be the anal retentive builder, <laughs> anal retentive architect in ancient Egypt. Uh, his scrolls must be exactly perpendicular. Uh, you know, just <laughs> we were watching, and so like the whole thing that happens, uh, the way we're introduced to his character, uh, Beck's girlfriend works in his house now because either you're like a slave that's building the obelisk and dying for no reason, or you've been like taken into somebody's home and you or some wealthy person's home and you like clean up after him and shit. And so she's gotten the clean up after him and shit job. And he's got the, I don't know, go pull rocks job. And he goes to visit her after his pulling rocks all day. You know, even though if you're a slave, do you really have like a, is there like an end to your time? <laughs> you get to be like, oh, it's 4.30, my slaving's done. Uh, it's kind of what he, because he just like literally drops the rope and runs off. <laughs> like, I don't think that's how that works. But so he shows up at her house and, and she's left a window open. And that window has blown about his papers, his papyrus. Oh, no. is, is flying about the room unacceptably. And he's like, you, you don't understand how nice I like to keep my desk. <laughs> and so he goes over and he closes the one window with like the classic Egyptian shutter that's on it. And he closes that one shutter and then he walks out of the completely open <laughs> archway to the front of his home. And my wife was watching and she's like, wait, he's pissed off about the open window when the entire front of his house has nothing on it. <laughs> what about the wind from that? Why are there even shutters on that window? <laughs> right? Like it's, it's open air architecture, man. Like, what are you doing? I thought you were a builder. But anyway, so he gets pissed at her and, and Beck has to defend her and they decide they're going to, they're going to run away from all this. They don't And it's this, all very man. sudden. They've put up yeah. with possibly years of slavery, but now it's too much. She's organized right. his desk one too many times. <laughs> That's right. She just can't take it anymore. Her neckline has plunged too far to tolerate this <laughs> any further. 
and 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 she has to move forward. So he leaves for the day, and you know they have another moment. Her 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 character basically serves one purpose, and that is to constantly remind Beck, who we are told over and over and over again. I mean, he can't say he doesn't believe in the gods because they're literally right in front of him. But he refuses to believe that they have any direct influence or control on his life. That seems to be his attitude, which also makes no sense because he's literally a slave being forced to build buildings for them. Yeah. So his entire attitude toward this flippant, like, eh, screw the You gods. can't tell me okay. what to do. You can't. I'm a man. I'm back. I'm a slave. I'm a, I'm a thieving slave who likes to thieve things. <laughs> and I, I don't do what no I God. want. <laughs> it's like, no, you don't. Like, you spent the entire day pulling rocks for the gods. Like, what do you think you're doing with your life, man? But so he's got some harebrained plan to go away and, and do stuff. No one knows. But basically, she exists to provide plot information through their telescope with double convex lenses that would absolutely not work in any circumstance. Yeah. <laughs> um, but basically she reveals like, because this dude built all of these things for the gods, he kind of knows the way around them. So Beck steals a map that is going to help him get into the treasure chamber. And, and you know, find his fortune and the the girlfriend wants him to to get uh, Horace's eye I guess like that's really what this is all leading to is he's going to break into this vault and he's going to try and get Horace's eye back because if Horace has his eye he might be able to help them defeat Set because Set is becoming a problem and apparently has been a problem like that's the thing again we don't know how long it's been theoretically years that this has been going on and just now, everybody's like, oh, man, this set guy's not so great. Whew. Gotta do something about this dude. He seems problematic as a leader. This is getting out of hand. <laughs> this is getting out of hand. Just totally out of hand. Then we get a, you know, again, little plot things. Dumb human characters in a movie that's not about them. It's This is like Jurassic Park, right? It's like nobody gives a crap about the people. Like, just forget it just show the dinosaurs now like that's all you're gonna do if if the only character traits you're gonna give us are these very simple ones then why are you even bothering uh and then, so we get a weird sex scene between hathor and um gerard butler uh yeah. what's her name elodie elodie young is that her name uh and she's she's very good like i'm gonna say like a lot of the acting in this is fine right like, gerard yeah, like these are fine actors yeah <laughs> Jared Butler's chewing his scenery. He's doing his, you know... I saw somebody call this uh, Egypt has fallen. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, Well, didn't that's, it come that's, out at the same time as London it. has fallen? It, yeah, like he released like four movies that year or something. It was crazy. Um, dude was, was putting in work. But... Uh, so he, he's obviously developed a relationship with Hathor, and Hathor offered herself to him to sort of save Horus's life. That's really where all this came from. Horus, he was about to kill him and, and just end him after taking his eyes out, and, and Hathor basically sort of said, if you don't do that, you know, you can have me, even though Set 
probably would have been able to have her regardless because everyone bowed to him before he was going to kill Horace. So not quite sure why he saw that as a good deal, but we'll, we'll take it. It's fine. Horace has to be alive for the movie to exist, so whatever. But then we're, we're told about, about Set's plan. And so he built this obelisk so that his dad, Ra, god of the sun, would would see it. Yep. And and know that he's down there. Which again, I'm just going to just going to throw out there Ra is the sun basically like he's mm-hmm. the sun uh that's that's who Ra is and the reason why Ra was the sun was because Ra could see everything mm-hmm. at all times oh yeah he was the great all-seeing eye in the sky it's literally a symbol just a huge eye and set apparently seems to think that Ra can't see him and so he built him this obelisk to make sure that he's seen and he means like an emotional way. I want yeah. you just, I want you to see my soul, Ra. Right. It's just it, it feels like Dad. a Dad. What do you think of my obelisk? Dad. You, you Best like guitar it? player Dad. in the world, self-taught, yeah. no lessons. <laughs> and it it's just it's so weird. It's like these very these very basic, very simple motivations that that just don't mean anything it's so strange uh and and later i mean like he goes up to see ra and and ra's like yeah i saw it it's real nice (laughs) that's it that's the only mention of it so he killed like five thousand people to build this obelisk and ra's like yeah it's it's great but if it was any what does he say if it was any higher it would have hit my ship (laughs) or hit my boat (laughs) his space boat Space boat. That's oh right. God. Space boat oh in the sky. God, yeah, we're not even movie? there. People. It's I know, dude. Like that's that's my predominant thought. My predominant line of thinking while I watch is like, what? What is this? What is this? Who asked like, for this? <laughs> no one. Literally, no one. So I guess we we can talk a bit about the the screenwriters here because. Um, They've only they've only done a couple of other projects. Uh, it's I want to say Matt Sharpless and what's the name of his name? Uh, no, Burke Sharpless and Matt Sazama. And they have written three films. Uh, I don't think they have anything in development. Maybe they do. Uh, no, yeah, they wrote uh, Morbius. And uh, the the new Morbius movie, the one with with Jared Leto, they wrote that. So, yeah. Great. Uh, they and they're showrunners on the Netflix Lost in Space series, which is actually really good. Um, but it's Netflix also Lost a TV in, show. It's a TV show, exactly. So you, you, get, you get all the standards. time, and it's an adaptation of a thing that already exists. Uh, they didn't have to come up with it on their own. Yeah. They also did, had like a story credit, I think. Yeah, they had a story credit on the Power Rangers movie in 2017, right after this. They didn't do the final script. Uh, John Gattins, uh, who's very good 
did the the final draft because Power Rangers 2017 is actually a fine film. Like it's actually it's a really good movie. It should not be. Nothing about it should make it good. It should have failed on every level because it's Power Rangers, but it doesn't. And it's actually excellent. And I love it. And so, like, you know, they've done stuff that's good. But before Gods of Egypt, they'd only done two other projects. One was Dracula Untold. Mm. Uh, did you see Dracula Untold? No. Uh, don't. It's oh. fine. Uh, <laughs> it, it attempts to completely reimagine the origin and history of Dracula's character. Oh. And tie it back to the Vlad the Impaler thing. Oh. Uh, even harder. Oh. Yeah. Um, Everything Luke you're e- saying is bad. <laughs> Luke Evans is in it. It's it's also got another Game of Thrones guy in it. Charles Dance. It, it's just... It's... It's... Hmm. Hmm. It, it's that. It's just that in film form. Uh, and then the second one that they had done was The Last Witch Hunter. Yeah. That... Did you see that one? Yeah. Yeah, I did too. Uh, that, that Vin Diesel classic. Uh, it's it's real rough. It's not terrible. I, I, Vin Diesel's kind of like <laughs> Vin Diesel just does whatever, man. Like really a it seems like guy. Whatever he you know, whatever he's doing to keep the lights on in between Fast and Furious movies, that's that's pretty much just it. Uh, it seems like if he gets to like swing a sword around, he's happy. So whatever. And then they made Gods of Egypt. So, I mean, they've, they've got like an interesting history, but this film is just an, just an epic series of missteps. And it just, there are things that just don't, they just don't work and they, they never do. And they just keep doing them over and over and over again in this movie. Which you can tell they, they had the, the motivation, they had the desire to turn this into something just huge, to give it this bombast, but it never lands. And so that really kicks up as as Beck begins his quote-unquote adventure. Um, so he breaks into the vault by clumsily falling into a coach carrying gold, and the two guys driving it just don't hear it. Like he falls into literally a mound of metal Even though loudly. he yells as he does. And and just nobody hears it, nobody sees it. And yeah, it just it doesn't make sense. But he sneaks in, he goes down a little a little ride, he gets his little water slide in the Goonies moment, I guess. And and then he's got a series of traps that he has to get through. And these traps are ridiculous and implausible. And we have seen literally nothing out of him at this point to justify why he would be capable of surviving this. But he does. Uh, there's a bunch of statues. They swing swords. You know, it's 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 what you would expect to see in a movie like this, right? There's nothing uncommon about it, but it still comes off as sort of bland and dumb. Um, you know, there, in script form, you would be like, oh, you know, he does these cool moves and he dodges all these statues swinging swords at him. Great. Awesome. Cool. But it's just, I don't know, it's just dumb. Like It's just everything about it is not good. Um, it's all CGified. It's basically just Brenton Thwaites doing some flips, jumps, and, and rolls. And then they animated all the stuff in later. 
it's very difficult to care because you know that he's not going to be hit by any of it at any point because it doesn't exist. Yeah. I, again, I go back to the prequels. It's kind of like the the droid manufacturing sequence at the end of Attack of the Clones where Natalie Portman's just obviously been told, I want you to roll down this thing. Just roll a couple of times and then step back and then dodge to the left. And, you know, and there's nothing there. She can't see anything. It's just, yeah, do it. And, and he does. And I don't know, there's other traps. He runs over things that fall. It, it just, it's, it feels like a really bad scene from a, an Indiana Jones scene that was cut because it was dumb. But he makes it, and and he obtains the Eye of Horus. Which, again, at this point, is like, we still don't even know what the, the effect of that is going to be, other than maybe Horus can help them. That's it. But he uses it to escape because there's scorpions everywhere, and... Did you know that scorpions were afraid of light? I didn't... I, I learned. I've learned a lot about ancient Egypt, thanks to Gods of Egypt. Yeah. Continuing um, education. Yeah, because uh, the light, the eye lights up when you hold yeah. it, apparently. Or, or when you want it to. It responds to your commands. Uh, yeah. as, as most eyes do. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, obviously. Unfortunately, when he goes back to his girlfriend, she did she snitch on him? Did the guy just figure it out? I don't even know. Uh, but basically, but she said figured, she was sorry, and I was like, "Why? Why did you do this?" Right. He <laughs> mentions again that he he prides himself on an organized office, and so that's how he knew that this one scroll of parchment had been replaced with a blank one, because his organized office was not organized fully, and so that's how he knew, and and he was able to determine that this girl and this guy were the ones responsible and that they had used it to break into his vault and steal, steal things. And it's just all kind of, and why couldn't they have just been caught together? Wouldn't that have just been easier than the whole contrived thing about the desk and the papers? Wouldn't it be easier if they just got caught? No, (laughs) Mm -mm. No, I mean, oh, okay. we clearly established that he likes an orderly desk area. <laughs> it was very important. We dedicated so the, a whole scene to it. I mean, we have set that up and it will be paid off. Orderly desk, missing paper. Do you see? Do you see how he did, how he cracked the plan? Right? I certainly see why he is the architect of the thing. That's right. <laughs> and so... They go to escape, and and this is a fairly good scene, I guess. I I don't know how Rufus Sewell is so accurate with a bow at like four and a half miles away on a moving target, but he is. And so he shoots Renton Thwaites' girlfriend, and I love his immediate reaction. Because, I mean, again, I don't live in the world of gods of Egypt, so I don't know. But generally, if you want to keep a person alive who's been shot by an arrow, you leave the arrow in. Because that way, then you don't bleed out, right? Well, this it's one like, doesn't even have a tip, so it just comes right out. Yeah, and so <laughs> he she gets shot by an arrow from Rufus Sewell, the architect. Mm-hmm. Um, Colonel Sanders. Mm-hmm. From The Matrix. It's a Matrix yep. joke. Uh, <laughs> do you see what I did there? <laughs> oh, I see. Oh, I'm tracking. <laughs> um, 
he shoots her and then he just immediately rips that arrow right out. Just like, yeah. nope, I, we can't leave this in here. This is, this is not helpful for your plunging neckline and we're only going to see it a couple more times. So let's rip that arrow right out. Uh, of course, there's no blood. I mean, there's no consequence of any kind to the violence in this film whatsoever. Um, uh, nothing realistic anyway. But so they they then go to the the temple of Osiris where Osiris's body has been laid after we find out that Set vivisected him, cut him into fourteen pieces, and uh, spread his body throughout the desert that were then collected and then put inside this tomb. And apparently that's just where Horus has been hanging out. He's been chilling out there, right? Why not? I mean, he tells him that if he didn't bring any wine to just get lost, you know, you know, get out of here, kid, and. Then he he somehow knows that he's got his eye, like he sees through it or flashes through it for some reason. But the thing I love about this scene, the thing I love about it, the thing that just makes my little heart go pitter-patter is that this guy has just watched his girlfriend get shot by an arrow. Then they rode their chariot all the way out into the desert to the Temple of Osiris to find Horus. And then he just leaves her in the chariot. Yeah. He just leaves her. Like he... He doesn't carry her inside where it's cool and, you know, potentially there's a god there who can help them. He goes inside with the eye and then gets into a dumb fight with a god rather than saying, like, you know, dude, I've got, like, a dying uh, woman outside and could you help, please? (laughs) But no. Uh, And instead we get a fight scene that doesn't make a ton of sense. And, uh, you know, we see some of Horace's, like, fighting prowess, I guess, maybe? I guess. And, and Britton Thwaites is very, like, he's very jumpy. I don't know. Like, he jumps really good. and jumps off of things. Kind of. <laughs> and then Horace tells him that he can't save his girlfriend. Um, maybe she's he already dead. He gives up really she's, fast. She's dead. She's dead. That's right. Maybe that's uh, so. I guess being left in the chariot is fine because you know she's. she's well, I mean, it's not very. It's not very respectful of the dead, but that's fine. Yeah, and uh, so then he goes back out to get her, and, and we get to see Horace do some like interesting rituals. But she's already too far along the path. A lot of talk about the nine gates of the underworld in this. Again, uh, it seems like somebody went to a like third edition Encyclopedia Britannica in their grandma's basement and was like, show me Egyptian mythology. And then they were like, ooh, ooh, nine gates, you say. Mm. And and then they kind of built their story around it. But so Horus can't do anything, even though he thought he could. But they call Anubis up, and uh, Anubis is a fully CG character. Um, and, because? Uh, and he kind of, just, yeah. I mean, just what cause. else are you going to do? He's a He's a jackal man, right? I mean, you can't. Again, I would have loved to see him have like some of the cool armor and stuff. Like he's got some of like Egyptian garb on, but he's he fully like CG a stone anywhere. Statue that's all crackly and just right. looks bad. Anubis just looks bad. Anubis does not look good in this. He looks a little better when he's actually in the underworld and he kind of fits in the CG universe. But yeah, it's it's not good. But so she's passing into the underworld, the into the afterlife without any riches to pay her way, and so and we don't. Yeah, she's she's doomed. She's doomed. And Brenton Thwaites, uh, he he can't he can't abide that. He can't abide it. And so this is supposed to be the the event that unites 
Beck and Horace on their quest. Beck's motivation to save his girlfriend from eternal damnation. Horace's motivation to get back his other eye so that he can transform into Robohawk, uh, Quicksilver, we'll call him, one of the Silver Hawks. Um, he's maybe the Copper Kid. We'll call him the, maybe the Copper Kid. That's what we'll call him. <laughs> he's the Copper Kid. And when he's in his bird form, all he can do is tweet. Right? <laughs> Sorry, a lot of Silver Hawks references here. But frankly, the Silver Hawks looked cooler than this, so it's fine. They did, yeah. Uh, but Horace gets one eye back from Beck. Even though he couldn't save his girlfriend, that was the deal. And and now Horace can see again. But he can't transform without both eyes. Which, if you've been paying or attention... Right, if you've been paying attention, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, although we do get a thing that happens later that establishes that like all the gods have like a like a special body part that's tied to their ability. And if you take that body part away, then they're, they're not gods anymore. And I don't remember that from any Egyptian mythology that I've no. studied that if you like ripped that's... out, like if you cut off their hand, they wouldn't be gods anymore. <laughs> or if you just, you know, rip their balls off all of a sudden, ah, it's not a God anymore. <laughs> the family jewels. <laughs> And, and, but that's because they're the all like that blue jewelly sort of you know everybody's right. everybody's Everybody object glows. is very magical and yeah. it lets you know it is a magical thing it's a magical item for magic and again it's it's unfair i think to say that this movie has to adhere to the precepts of egyptian mythology because it doesn't it is using character names basic situations and a visual roadmap, and that's it. Um, it's kind of Shakespearean in that regard. I mean, sure, if I'm being honest, like it's taking the barest outline of something and then filling it in with whatever it wants. With whatever you want. And I, I again, there's there's a piece of me, a very small piece of me, that wants to root for this film. Because I see why somebody like Alex Proyas was interested in making it. It's untethered from a property, right? Even though it feels like it's tethered to a property, it isn't, right? There's nothing that you have to adhere to. There's no rules of this universe that you must bring into it that you didn't come up with yourself. So it's it's a, an open playground, right? And I can see somebody like Proy is absolutely excited about that possibility. It's being it's actually being given an adequate budget to create it. I don't think that budget was used especially well here, but it, it had budget. I mean, there's there's nothing it's not like Dark City where they didn't have any money. You know, this this has tremendous amounts of money. So I mean I can absolutely I want to root for this film because it's the kind of movie that we want to see Hollywood take risks on. That we want to see a big studio say, man, let's let's shoot for this and see if it hits. And it doesn't really happen anymore, right? Unless there's some established thing to tie it to. You're not going to see movies like this out of most people. You know, so supposedly, prior to working on this, Proyas was a year plus in development 
on a fully motion captured avatar avatar style rendition of Milton's Paradise Lost. That was the film that he was prepping to do next. And then it got completely shut down by the studio that was funding it, which I think was Fox. And supposedly a lot of the technology that he had built to create Paradise Lost, which was going to be this fully CG thing, angels, demons, war in the heavens, you know, the whole nine yards. And then he was able to sort of... Yeah, like that sounds really interesting. But that got taken away and then he was given this which feels in a lot of ways like he's he's doing the same kind of big bombastic mythological storytelling but untethered from any kind of relationship to a source material so untethered i'm wondering from now, reality in many ways right and i think that that's the issue is that it's so untethered that it loses all context, right? There's no context for what's happening in this, right? Nothing that you can plan or, or point to and say, Oh, this is like this, you know, beyond the most barest connections to you know, Egyptian mythology. And, and I think the movie suffers for it. Like it needs some kind of grounding in something. Um, you know, I, I love a good fantasy. I mean, I, I love fantasy. I love writing fantasy. I love interacting with fantasy. I think fantasy is a wonderful playground. But the fantasy that does well, right? And unfortunately, they were obviously trying to play on that with casting a bunch of Game of Thrones people in this. The fantasy that does well in popular culture is grounded. It's relatable, right? It ha you, can, you can understand it and tie it to something. And this... I just don't know if you can. Um, and and we and really after all of the like getting the eye back and making the deal, then we go see Grandpa Ra. Huh. And boy, boy golly, uh, this is where the movie. If if you've been on the rails with this movie, I am gonna I am gonna bet. I would probably bet good large sums of money that this is where that train absolutely goes off the rails because this scene makes very little sense uh it's not it's not terrible i mean but so we'll we'll just lay the scene here so they they climb to the top of some big mountain and there's like a sun thing at the top and jamie stargate a Stargate. Jamie Lannister prays for Ra's help, and he, even though we were literally just told that he can't transform without both of his eyes, he transforms because yeah. Ra gives him the ability to. And it's like, there's your first clue there, bub, that your eyes have nothing to do with it, but whatever. So he transforms into Birdman, and um, he flies up into space actual space um with Breton Thwaites in tow and lands on the solar sailor of Ra uh, a, a big boat in the sky that's uh it's kind of temple looking I mean I, I appreciate that at the very least pieces of this set are real uh not a lot of it but at least a little bit which you know thanks and and who do we find but Jeffrey Rush. 
Jeffrey Rush, <laughs> Captain Barbosa himself. No, I love Jeffrey Rush. I do lot. too. I absolutely love Jeffrey Rush. Jeffrey Rush. I think he's great. The King's Speech is one of my favorite movies. I that snuck up on me. I, I watch it with my speech classes a lot, and um, I, I absolutely adore that film. I think it's wonderful, and it, it almost is exclusively because of Jeffrey Rush and the character that he makes. Um, so yeah, I have zero problem with Jeffrey Rush being in this movie. But what what is this? What is this? What is this? Because Jamie Lannister has come to consult with Grandpa Roth. Not because he's asking anything big. And aside from the fact that... All right. Why... (laughs) Why does Jeffrey... Why is Jeffrey Rush the only character in this movie who has a brazenly and obviously Egyptian hairstyle. Well, well, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I just, it's such a weird choice. Nobody, I mean, Gerard Butler looks like he, he legitimately just walked off the plane after filming London is Fallen. Like he didn't get a haircut, he didn't shave, he just he showed up. Just they put a breastplate on him. I just and you know, Jamie Lannister looks like they let his hair grow a little bit from the last season of Game of Thrones. Nobody else has hair that is so obviously anglicized Egyptian, right? Like it looks like the hair. The the Rami Tap cult people in Young Sherlock Holmes are, which is yeah. supposed to be an Egyptian cult. Like it's that. Like when you rip the you, you when you rip her wig off, that's the haircut she's got underneath because she's Egyptian. Oh my god, you know, <laughs> and and that's what he's got. And it's just again, it's so costuming weird. is is bizarre. Like the makeup and the costuming is just so. Confusing to me. And, and it, when it, we see him, it's the same thing. He's like wearing like old rags, like beggar's rags, and then he throws those off and he's got this ornate, you know, obviously Egyptian pharaoh inspired looking outfit. It's it just why? Why do you have the why do you have the rag cloak on? What do you is it be, is it because we were supposed to as an audience be like, oh, who's this? There's this old mystic. (laughs) Who's this strange old man that we've already been told four times is raw, so he's not just a strange old man, right? You know, and then he grows, I mean, oh my god. I like that his skin is, like, burnt beyond all, you know, beyond all repair. Like, he's he's legitimately, looks like he's just, like, got skin cancer everywhere. I, I mean, I like that from a like a, a character standpoint that this guy who literally harnesses the power of the sun every day would be sort of burnt by it. Um, but everything else about his costuming is just nonsensical. It's just ridiculous. And ultimately the only thing that he's here to do is to get some water from the celestial waters, which then Ross says like, it ain't my water. Do what you want. <laughs> which I think this is, is just a completely so pointless visit. It's a pointless visit, and and I find it very difficult that Osiris wouldn't know that. 
right? Like, why is this a shock to him? Like, oh, you know, I can just go dip my dip my flask into it any time. Well, thanks, Grandpa Ra. I appreciate it. And all of this is being done so that they can go and what put out Set's flame. Is that the goal here? Like, they want to like the flame that powers Set. Which, <laughs> okay. I, uh, right. I mean, he doesn't look like he's being powered by an existential flame, but okay. They're going to go dump the water into that and that'll extinguish the, the, the flaming sands of the Sahara itself. And then Set will lose his power and Jamie Lannister can kill him. Oh God. I mean, we've, we've literally spent 30 minutes moving toward this goal at this point and spoiler, spoiler alert, they don't do it. Yeah, <laughs> they just don't even come close, you know. You know, so that's that's part of my issue with with this is that I'm fine with characters who fail at their goals. That's a good thing in a story because seeing a character deal with a plan that they have enacted failing tells you a lot about the character. Um, you know, this is something that came up a lot with the last Jedi, right? That they, that ultimately Finn and Rose, their, their storyline on the casino planet, which I know a lot of people hate it. It's, it, it's whatever. It doesn't matter. Um, but their plan fails. Therefore, what was the point? Why you wasted our time? It's like, well, no, having characters who fail and get out of that failure or deal with that failure is an opportunity for character growth an opportunity to see a character grow. So I'm, I'm okay with that, but that's not what they do with the failure. It, they just go on and come up with something else. They don't even process that they were they were incapable of, of doing what they set out to do. So the timeline of this film and the time span of things that are happening get real wonky from here on out because if... If Ra is any example, all of this has happened in basically a day. Like, Brenton Thwaites steals the Eye of Ra night before. Next morning, goes to his girlfriend, gets caught. She gets shot, goes to the temple, finds Horus. Horus goes up to see Ra, right? So there's a 24-hour time span, presumably. And then we cut to Set, and Set is waging some sort of massive war against the other gods. Thousands of people, armies clashing, gods mm-hmm. have all sort of fallen back to a single castle. Can Go we ahead. talk about his beetle chariot? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, so... Uh, Again, this is not real life. There is nothing historical happening in this at all, other than the fact that there are you know, Egyptian things that you might recognize from history. But so Set, in the midst of his massive battle against the other gods, uh, has apparently found two massive flying scarabs that are capable of propelling his very ornate and very golden chariot through the air. <laughs> the greatest of ease. And we've seen, uh, what is it, uh, Neytiri, uh, she's got like a flying chariot with birds or something 
as well. So, I mean, it's, it's not like... It doesn't completely come out of left field, I guess, but boy, it looks bad. Oh, it's uh, so bad. It's it's real bad. Um, and he's wearing that the the helmet, the alien yeah. skull helmet that it's supposed mm-hmm. to be Egyptian inspired, but it literally just looks like an alien skull. It's it's bad. I mean, because they're trying to do like this ribbed sort of beetle like thing with his his attire at this point, his battle gear. And and yeah, it just looks ridiculous. It's a horrible shape. It's a bad silhouette. And and so he's he's trapped these other gods in uh, Neftiri's uh, castle, and and he storms it, kills a bunch of. They had gold blood, so I guess the guards outside were gods too. <laughs> this world is beginning to fall apart. What qualifies as gods? I like. I mean, who was that? Was that Steve? You know, God of Wednesdays. Like, who, who was the that god guy? God of guards. He was. He was the god of guarding. Was he the guard of moats? Right. Um, but he he slaughters those guys and um. And, and goes inside, has a weird conversation with Neftiri. Apparently, they had a relationship, and she didn't follow through and then she like brings her wings out cuz she's got wings she doesn't turn into a into a, a cg animal or anything but she's got like really pretty wings and set doesn't let her go and he rips the wings off which we don't really know why at this point but what we what we eventually discover is that set is collecting the bits from a bunch of other gods with he's the making intent, a woman's suit. <laughs> he's that's right. He is the Buffalo Bill of this universe. But when when he chops her wings off, they turn into like well, frankly, they look like doors. They, they yeah. turn into like these doors. And I, I don't know. It's 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 very awkward. We don't it know. It would what have he's been doing. fine if that had if that had been established a while ago. But at this point in the movie, it's, you're asking a lot to, to throw one more thing at all of the things that we've had to accept as your well, audience. We just don't know what Seth is doing. Yeah. Like, what is he doing? We, I mean, and this, is, and this is a movie where it's going to be perfectly acceptable to have Seth with the architect or somebody, who, whoever, like a, a wall, the bull guy, whatever. Just stand there and be like, when I collect all of the powers of the other gods, I will be ultimate and I will take on my father. You know, like, we just need, like, the villain monologue because we don't know what the dude is doing. The only motivation we've been given at this point is I want to build a big building so my dad will notice me. That's it. So what? what's plan B or plan A part two? Like, what? what is he doing? And we just don't know. And so it, it sort of neuters him in terms of his villainy because his motivations and goals are completely unknown. And we're spending so much time with him that given how much time we spend with Set, it's really dumb that we don't know those things. And it's just, it, it's a failure of screenwriting that we, we cannot understand what that character is attempting to do. So 
after he he sort of dominates the other gods, I guess we're supposed to believe that he has has basically subdued all of them, and the ones who refuse to to kowtow, he's killed. Um, we're we're taken back to Horus and uh, Beck, and they are are coming down from the Temple of Ra. And unfortunately, you know, even though Ra gave Horus the ability to change back into the Birdman, he takes it away. 20 feet off the ground and they fall and collapse, you know, which is very exciting. And Beck makes a nice joke about it, but again, makes very little sense. Yeah. It's like, well, so, so Ra in his benevolence who gave him the ability to become Birdman in the first place, just thought it would be funny to just take it away 20 20 feet from the ground. So they'd take a little tumble. Uh, again, just, it all seems very strange and, and, not not very well thought out. Then we get our first of two arguments about humans fetching water for the gods. <laughs> One, I could tolerate. One, I'm fine with. But there are two. Yeah. There are two scenes where a god asks a human to go fetch them water, and the human goes like, nah, I don't wanna. And it... I know it's supposed to probably establish Beck as this this brash. I don't do what the gods, you know. Fuck you! I won't do what you tell me. Like it's <laughs> it's I mean, ultimate it's, rebellion. It's rage against the machine. It's like I'm raging. Um, you know. Sorry, I probably blew out somebody's ears with that one. That's but uh, it's uh, it, it just it's such an odd thing, and for it to happen twice. Uh, it leads to a joke. I mean, Beck like spits in his water, which is kind of funny, I suppose. Um, but then it, it happens again with Hathor and it, it just makes no sense. Um, again, if there was maybe a larger theme trying to be developed, be developed of the gods respecting humans role, which given what happens at the very end of the film, that seems reasonable that that theme was there, that the, the gods needed to learn how to respect the humans a bit too okay but it, it's just such a strange moment then they get into the bull man fight and and that's fine i mean here he does a lot of his spinning speed ratcheting thing that just doesn't look very good a lot of it is just clarity like i don't did you did you notice that like during all of like the spin around and stuff when he's fighting the bulls did it just look super low i mean for lack of a term low resolution to you everything was very muddy and I didn't know uh, if it was, if it was just the the location and the way that it was filmed, but it just didn't look good. I was I was really surprised, um, you know, because if you if you're gonna go slow mo, like you need to have pretty decent clarity for that to look solid. You know, any kind of blurring in slow motion is is gonna be super super obvious. Like most and of it the just, special mm, effects in this are abysmal. They're, they're so bad. They're really rough, man. Like in that very scene when they fall down that what down the waterfall at the end of the conflict. Yeah. That is terrible. Yeah, it's the water especially looks bad. All Ooh. of the water in this looks bad. Um I was watching uh Avatar not too long ago. And an Avatar is is a problematic film for lots and lots of reasons. I don't I don't love 
Avatar. Uh, I like most of James Cameron's output. I think he's one of the best filmmakers of all time. I love most of his movies. Avatar is, is middle of the pack, low of the pack for me. But the CG water in Avatar is ridiculous. Like, ridiculously good. And that was seven years before this movie. And the water in this looks awful. <laughs> it's so bad. Um, but yeah, just it, it, all of the special effects, just they, they don't really hang together. A lot of them are too shiny, even though I kind of know that's the point. But it's too much, right? There's not enough texture, not enough. It doesn't feel lived in enough, you know, in a lot of ways. And that, that's problematic. But, you know, the, the bull man reports back to set and and set you know kills him because he failed blah 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 which that ir- that irritated me so much i think i paused the movie because yeah. it sets up that little oh you're fine you did fine and you know he's going to kill him mm-hmm. set has done nothing merciful or likable it it sets it up like it's this unexpected moment of cruelty, but it's completely expected. It's completely in character and it's unsurprising. And it just, it adds nothing. Why didn't he just kill him to begin with? Why draw it out? Right. Yeah. Just, I, I think it would have been much more interesting if he just brutally murdered him the moment he delivered his report yeah. and let that be the end of it. I mean, but he always why? has to be the, the, the smarmy guy, the jokey yeah. guy. <laughs> I just, right. I, I can't turn this stand into that character. Joke. <laughs> and so finally we get a, a little hint of what Seth's really trying to do. And that is he wants to unseat the underworld. He wants to be in charge of all of it and, and live forever. Cause if there's no underworld, then he can't die and, and he'll live and be the, the Lord of all for all time. Okay. And the mechanics of that are not explained or, or delved into in any way. What would happen to just everyone else? Would we all live forever then and worship him forever? Because that his, sounds fine. <laughs> that's, yeah, that doesn't sound terrible. But I, I was kind of thinking like it would be funny at the end of the movie if all of the humans somehow came out and they were like no it was like on the simpsons if they were like no to us he was a peacemaker <laughs> we loved oh, set <laughs> he was great he was a cool dude man he was going to grant him. us immortality saw that guy in london has fallen it was pretty good gc 300 um but yeah so he wants to destroy the underworld that's like his thing now and all of these other actions seem to, to sort of lead up to that, even though we don't really see the full picture yet. Then he has this confrontation with, with Hathor. And so, again, Hathor is whatever they want her to be in this movie. Uh, but this, this bracelet that she wears that supposedly Horace got for her fought his way through the underworld to get... Wait, it doesn't matter. It Whatever. Mm-hmm. This bracelet, if she takes it off, then she's immediately transported back to the underworld, right? Like the, the hands reach out of nothing and pull her to the underworld. And so she uses that as a taxi service, I guess, like an Uber. 
she's like and 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 so she she goes through the underworld in a fairly terrifying scene or i think it was meant to be terrifying and then she slips the bracelet back on and then she's just like dropped back out into the sand again and she's like was well, it better than running it's like was it mm. i'm not sure it seems like the risks of that if you had lost the bracelet or had it knocked out of your hand or i don't know well, just, just not gotten just it back on summon, successfully why can't you just summon your beast form she doesn't have one her 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 power is shiny eyes shine eyes that's true. uh shiny eyes that that you know make make people do things um and then um we just we move immediately on to our next uh predetermined action set piece and this is this is a problem for all mainstream quote unquote blockbusters these days but by golly it is a problem in this film and that is the the middle act of this movie the second act of this movie is loosely connected action set pieces without context which in a movie this long is unacceptable uh it's the same thing that transformers movies suffer from where we don't really know how to get these characters from pre-visualized action set piece one to pre-visualized action set piece two to pre-visualized action set piece three. And so we're going to go ahead and shoot pre-visualized action set piece two, and then we'll just kind of figure it out later. Right? Like that's what this feels like because they wind up at another temple and as they're sitting there, just kind of chilling, you know, just beckoning a God, just talking about stuff reflecting on their lives, talking about their goals, sharing cupcake recipes. Uh, they get attacked by twin snake ladies. Uh, one of one of whom is played by uh, Abby Lee, who I really like. Okay. Um, uh, she was I'm, in the I'm Neon familiar. Demon. Oh, um, she played okay. one of the lovely model girls, and she was fantastic in that movie. But sure. she's—I mean, she does nothing in this. She dies. Oh, yeah, she kind of sits on a chair and mm -hmm. then uh, gets her head attached to that chair and then dies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and that's really cool. Are these supposed to be basilisks? Is that what these are in the in this scene? The big snake scene? I don't sure. even know. I think, sure, yeah, whatever. Big old snakes. Um, they're big old snakes. Who knows? Cobras. Um, I, I think basilisks would be the, the appropriate term, but... They're they're CG creatures. Egypt shit. Um, <laughs> it's Egyptian crap, you know that stuff. It's like the, everything about this is just <clears throat> Egyptian tourist trap, just like right, a gift yeah, shop. The most that basic level of Egyptian knowledge. And I heart Egypt, or I pyramid Egypt T-shirts. I, I pyramid Egypt, yeah. But so I mean, there's an action set piece. Beck runs. What do you even want to say? He like runs bait, and then uh, Nikolaj Koster Waldauer uses his uh, magical extendo staff to stab things, and somehow they're successful. I, I don't know. It, it doesn't really. It, it's whatever. It's it's an action set piece. Some of it's pretty good. You know, I like some all clever... the parts. I like all the parts when Jimmy Whiskers picks him picks up the boy like a little baby. 
that's true as they're sprinting away the first time he's like run faster he's like i can't and so he picks him up and then after he picks him up the beck goes like run faster he goes i can't (laughs) you know there's some interesting banter but it's 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 all for not nauseating Uh, but then Hathor just sort of like walks out of the sand, kind of appears from nowhere, uh, which, you know, okay. And, and she makes the snake kill itself, which is, I guess, hilarious. Then we get... All right, so the, as we've said, the gods are much bigger than the regular folk, right? That's, that's clearly established. God's bigger than regular folk. And this, the the scene of them walking through the water, absolutely. The Egyptian swamps, swamps, very common, very typical. Go straight from desert to the swamp, just a mild walk. But this is where their technique is is exposed, unfortunately. Mm. Because the way that they got these shots apart from like your standard you know depth of field manipulation you know your your foreground background element stuff where Britton Thwaites is actually like standing 15 feet behind her or whatever the way that they got these shots for for post is they used a dual camera setup and one camera would have a very wide angle lens or not a wide angle but they would have a very wide shot and then the other camera would have a much closer shot. And in essence, all they did was make sure that the tall person was on right side of frame, short person was on left side of frame, and shot them with the two different lenses to get the two different sizes, and then stitch them together in post. And this is where it becomes completely and utterly obvious that that is what they did. Because during this scene, as they're walking through the water, you'll notice that the gods, who are supposed to be nine feet tall, their legs are submerged in the water the exact same amount as Britain Thwaites' legs mm-hmm. are submerged in the water. Right? The water is coming up to basically like three to four inches below the knee, and it is three to four inches below the knee on the gods as well, <laughs> when it should be ankle length at most. Right. Otherwise, Britton Thwaites is walking on a plank underneath the water that's about two feet above it. And so, again, this is just how they chose to do it. This is the, the technology of the shot, but it really becomes visually confusing. And, and even my family was like, wait, how tall are they? What is... He's just it, very small, actually. <laughs> and it just happened, and it happens again later because uh, there's a scene at the end when they're on the top of the obelisk where they they actually built steps at the top of the obelisk. Great. Certainly what I would put at the top of my giant 4,000-foot-tall building is a place where you can go up and just walk around. But whatever. And when Brenton Thwaites is on the steps they're the same size as they are for the gods. Like the same distances are being observed, even though like Britain Thwaites should be like standing on three steps to have it work. But that doesn't matter because all of that shit's done. And then we get the best scene in the movie, which is Chadwick Boseman being thousands of thoughts. 
<laughs> and straight up, like this scene is so good and it's so cool and it's handled so adeptly that it makes me physically pained that the rest of the movie that a scene like this can exist in is so terrible. Yeah. Because if the rest of the movie could be even just a little bit of this, this movie would be awesome, but it's not. (sighs) It's not. Not even close. (laughs) So if you've forgotten they're trying to get into the temple of set, which is a pyramid so that they can drop the magic water into the magic fire. And that magic fire is what powers set for some reason. And they could, if they could extinguish the flame then set will be weak. And even though Horace only has one eye, he'll be able to maybe kill set. Maybe not. He got his ass kicked before when he had two eyes, but mm, he needs to believe in himself. That's right. He just needs he needs confidence, right? But if they're going to get into Set's pyramid, Set has I think they actually say that he's hired. I don't know, but the Sphinx is there. He hired right? the Sphinx. He hired the Sphinx. He went down. He went down to the local hardware store where the Sphinx is known to hang out. Popped him a fiver and said, "Yo, can you come and protect my temple?" I think some guys are going to try and get in there. More so, where this came from. <laughs> and, and yeah, Exactly. <laughs> Man, you got to see. I got all this money. I have a freezer so, full of pizza rolls, and they're all yours. <laughs> they're all yours, man. I've got macaroni and cheese on the pot on the stove. You can have it. But so they, they need Thoth because he's the god of wisdom, and the Sphinx asks really hard riddles. And so Thoth has to go or, or come with them in some way, which again, the scene is great. There's thousands of Chadwick Bozeman's everywhere, uh, being nicely and, and carefully doubled in all kinds of ways. Just, it looks great. And, and there is a nice, nice line. He tells Hathor to, to turn around cause he doesn't want him, her using her like magic eyes on him. And she's like, oh, I know you prefer that anyway. And he was, and he's like, hmm, yes, I do. You know I can't lie. And I was like, that's such, that is such a great line. And he delivers it so, so well. Um, anyway, this is just an excuse so that they can, they can get his assistance for the Sphinx. And it actually ends up being Beck who convinces him. I think that's the whole thing. Um, so, again, there... I could tell there was probably supposed to be like more scenes where Horace is developing a begrudging respect for Beck, the human right of being capable and, you know, Hey, he's not an idiot after all. Like, you know, I I can, these humans are all right. Right. I can feel the movie trying to develop this, but it's spending legitimately no effort and no time to make this connection. Right. Like a lot of it comes down to time. According to what we've seen, Beck and and Horace have been together for like 48 hours. This feels like the type of movie where this needs to be weeks, months that these guys are journeying together, right? We need campfire scenes. We need food gathering scenes, right? We need moments between these dudes where 
we're seeing them grow to like each other, right? We need we need thirteenth warrior scenes, right? Where it's like, okay, I I don't like you, but we're forced into this because of circumstance, and because we're hanging out together and getting to know each other, we're going to develop a kind of relationship that will work, and we don't get any of that. And I think we need it. I mean, that's what the middle part of this movie should be. You know, a couple of interactions with gods who are chasing them down. Sure. Maybe a monster. Maybe, a, you know, desert jackals. I don't know. Whatever. But, like, mm-hmm. like, we really need to see these two characters growing together. Not just these moments where he's like, huh, you don't suck so bad. And and that's really all we get. And it's it's very, very unfortunate. Because I think... Brenton Thwaites, as far as like this this crop of young actors who are trying to be in these big budget movies, his face is not as punchable as many of the other ones who are attempting to do this. I don't hate him. And I would be willing to like him as a character if I was given a reason to. Yeah. But I'm not really being given a reason to like him. Nothing compelling. Uh, you know, Jimmy Whispers is fine. He's like... He's fine. I liked him in Amsterdam, right? That was a or New Amsterdam. That was a good show. I enjoyed that. Uh, I'm not a big Game of Thrones guy. I kind of tapped out on that show after the fourth season because I could see exactly where it was going. I mean, nowhere. And 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 I was proven right because it went nowhere. But he's fine. Like he's fine. But I if you really want the human character to be the emotional center of the film, then we need more with him. Otherwise eliminate him and make me care about Horace. Right? Cause you, you're obviously not able to juggle both. They can't. So then we get a scene between Hathor and the human, you know, Hathor and Brenton where she's trying to explain the underworld to him and love and, but ultimately, what she's trying to explain is that Horace isn't that big of an asshole. And I'm like, okay, we are we are one hour and 15 minutes into your movie. If you have not proven to me that one of its main characters that I'm supposed to love is not an asshole at an hour and 15 minutes, then you've, you've done fucked up. Like you, you've dropped the ball. Uh, especially if you have to have another character be the one to tell me that. (laughs) It's it's so, it's just so inept, especially when these should be slam dunks. Like Horace is Indiana Jones. That's who he should be, right? Lovable, kind of a scumbag, but ultimately you think he's okay. Thor. Yeah, he's Thor. Um, Beck needs to be overly genuine, a little bit shady, kind of self-serving ultimately does the right thing, right? And that's really all you have to establish about these guys and then throw them into the mix together, right? I mean, in, in, it's uncharted too. There's <laughs> dozens of examples of, of media that have pulled this, this relationship set off successfully. In fact, everyone and should turn this movie off and go play Uncharted 2. Just go play Uncharted 2 and it'll be fine. But so Hathor uses her ability, um, which is nebulous, undefined, and, and we really don't care, to uh, allow Brenton Thwaites to connect with his girlfriend for a moment, which seems implausible. 
that it would be that easy to just sort of open up a portal and talk to your dead loved ones as they make their way to the underworld, but by golly, they do it. Um, but all of that gets shoved to the side because we're finally at the Temple of Set, which is a which is a giant Rubik's pyramid. I. It's kind of like a like a Super Mario Brothers puzzle, you know. Mm, yes, a lot of moving yeah. blocks. Yeah, we need we needed like a, a four a four cactus tall guy like floating yeah. around in the background. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, all could it ride is, a dinosaur. That's right. And ultimately, all Horace uh, all it, all it is is just Brenton Thwaites jumping, uh, doing a long jump on a green screen soundstage, and uh, you know finding his way towards a set of dirt staircases. But I guess the the concept here is shifting sands, right? Like he's he's made the entire place move, and you have to get in and spin a big wheel to make it stop moving because architecture. Um, I don't know if the architect is the one. Who, I don't know if Rufus Sewell built this for him too. But man, it's impressive. Um, in terms of CG green screen sets, boy golly, is it just high quality? Is it? But he's. Uh, no, no, not at all. It actually looks really terrible. It's really bad. Uh, the lighting's bad. There's a lot of red for no reason. It only shows up on some characters and not on others, uh, which, you know, what have you. Uh, we do get a nice Chadwick Boseman moment where he's like, if you keep pulling off stuff like this, I'm going to study you because you're kind of you're kind of strange. Yeah, so that's that was pretty good. And, and then finally we meet the Sphinx, who is a, a giant dirt monster. Uh, I'm going to be honest, I was expecting more. I was too. I, I was kind I was of expecting too. it to just straight up be sort of like the never-ending story where it's just a statue that's standing there and it's talking. Um, and I, I thought that would be really cool and kind of awesome because, you know, it's supposed to be a sphinx. But no, it's a giant CG dirt monster uh, who I guess is supposed to be in Timbat. I don't know if you were intimidated. I wasn't intimidated. It looked kind of dumb. Well, it it seemed like a very nice sphinx. It didn't kill them until they had the right answer. So, yeah, I, the way I saw it, I always thought was that if you got the answer wrong, then it killed you immediately. Yeah, no, you know, no questions asked. No, that's what happens. Um, but it just kind of paws at him for a little bit, and yeah. and nothing happens until he gets the right. Uh, the right answer. Well, they really kind of, wanted them and, to make it. Mm-hmm. They did. Yeah. And of course, you know, they get it wrong a couple of times. They get beat up a little bit, but nothing comes of it. Again, this giant, massive, you know, Sphinx doesn't seem very capable of killing them in any significant way. Uh, and they make it past, and it doesn't matter because Set shows up magically out of nowhere. He rips out Thoth's brain very easily which it seems like that would be a complicated thing to do, but he just kind of grabs the top of his head and pulls real hard and just comes right out, sort of like a light bulb, I guess. Mm. And and then traps Jimmy Whispers and uh, Hathor in a cage, and instead of killing them, he leaves them and says, like, oh, you know, you'll get killed later mm-hmm. when the thing collapses. <laughs> And then, for reasons unknown, I guess because the li- was it because the light shone on him? Was that the thing? Uh, Horace is able to break the cage. Why? How? 
don't know. Doesn't matter. They get out because Horace holds the wheel that they turned to make the sand stop uh, over his head, and they use it as a shield that somehow protects them from the collapse of an entire pyramid. Because just holding a thing over your head during the collapse of a building, I, I mean, I've. That's fine. fine. I mean, that's what I've I've always done in the past. As buildings are collapsing around me, I just grab like a table or a chair and I put it over my head and I just kind of slowly walk out while it's happening and everything's okay. And and the only thing that happens after that is that Beck Brittenthwaite sort of like yells at Horace about being a bad god. And how his girlfriend believed in him and that he didn't listen to her. And he's like, I was in a tomb. I couldn't hear nothing. And she's like, no, he's like, no, you just just didn't care, man. And I'm like, okay, okay, okay. You guys have been together for a while now. And just now after the collapse of the pyramid, you you are angry about this. Which I understand, like, Set had said some stuff, like, that Horace, uh, Horace couldn't save her, right? That that was kind of a lie, right? The Horace wasn't going to be able to bring her back from the dead, and he was just leading him on. So, I mean, I get it. It's not unmotivated dialogue, but it's like, seriously, is this your, is this your major concern right now? Um, and then Hathor, apropos of nothing, offers her, offers herself as an exchange, right? To take her bracelet so the girl can use it. Which, okay. All right. <laughs> All right. It seems like there are probably some other options for this. And maybe just staying with these guys and working with them to help them defeat Set might be the better choice. But, okay, yeah, you go hang out in the underworld, I guess. But I guess the goal is to say that gods can feel for the plight of humans. Again, I think that's just a a theme that was probably in in some earlier draft that just got excised or just backgrounded because it, it doesn't matter or mean anything. Um, but, but that's what happens. Uh, and then we spend a bunch of time in the underworld and Bruce Spence is there. Yay. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I love Bruce Spence. I'll see Bruce Spence anytime. But, but now he's in this movie. He's in this movie and he, he I can imagine that it took him longer to get into the makeup than it did to film his lines for this movie. <laughs> I, I can imagine the applique of makeup took six to seven hours, and he probably worked for 20 minutes. <sighs> but so we get a, uh, an idea of the Egyptian judgment process. Uh, you know, you have to balance against the weight of a feather, and you have to pay because Seth's a bad person. We see a really like crappy dude be able to go through and like this really nice old woman that's been kind to Beck's girlfriend this entire time. She gets uh, disintegrated. I don't know. It's like she turns to sand or something. Uh, Again, this is all very loose understanding of how the Egyptian underworld works. But it doesn't matter as, as many things in this film don't matter because... Beck shows up somehow. Do we know how? How does no. He... Okay, he just <laughs> appears. He appears in the underworld next to her, uh, presumably be- because he has 
Hathor's bracelet, maybe? I don't know. Something. Something happens. Plot and device. you can go down there. Yes. Uh, plot thing happens, and apparently that just stops the entire process of the dead being judged for a little bit, and nobody seems concerned about it. But none of that matters, because Set... Set has been inserted into the into the biggest Lego construction set ever. And he is now being upgraded. Uh, I don't know if these are the flames from his temple that he's been bathed in, or if it's something else, or if it's just fire. Doesn't matter. No one knows. No one seems to be talking about it. But he's got his dog armor on, whatever that is. And... Are they welding? I think they're welding all the stuff in. I, it's yes, just, they are. It's it's Egyptian. It's early Egyptian welding technology. <laughs> in in an Egyptian forge. Yeah, and they're in some kind of forge, and they're they're basically upgrading him with all the the god pieces that he's acquired. And the architect is there, despite this having nothing to do with Set's architecture projects. No, apparently he's also a priest or something now. He's a he's an a priest of Set. Set doesn't have a lot of friends. Yeah. Uh, Architect's got a full double duty. Yeah. yeah. There's not a lot of worshippers of Set, apparently. But so, now that Set has been upgraded, he can fly, because he's got the wings from uh, the one lady. He's got Thoth's brain, so he knows all. He's got Horus's eye, so he sees all. He is a <clears throat> Megazord. He has become... The Egyptian Megazord. Uh, and if only he could find the Black Lion, everything would be fine. But it's still hidden out there in the desert somewhere. Ay, ay, ay. <laughs> but he uh, he goes to visit his dad. And... Whew, what a scene. What a scene. Gerard mm. Butler saying, look at my world, Dad. Look what I did. I did all of it for you. Uh, I did it to, to honor you, Dad. I want... Dad, I want your attention, Dad. You threw me out in the desert, Dad. You took away my Metallica tapes, Dad. Right? Like, it's just this, it's such a strange conversation. And and Ra finally kind of reveals his ultimate plan for Set, which was to eventually replace him as the guy fighting off Apophis, the teeth cloud. Uh, worm, worm cloud, worm cloud teeth man, um, who's constantly the trying to. Worm. Basically, it's a sandworm from Dune, who's trying to con- always trying to consume the world. Every night, it tries to rise up and consume the world, and Ra is tasked with defeating it every night so that it can't destroy humanity. Okay, cool. And so he wants Set to take his place, and Set's like, Nah, I want to do that. I want to rule. The world. And then Ra's like, but there won't be a world to rule. He's like, well, you know, I'll let Apophis eat it. And then I'll just keep what's left. That doesn't seem like that's how that works. But it's... Alright. I am I mean, as a surface read, it seems like a bad plan. Because what are you going to rule? I'm not exactly? sure you can reason with the sandworms. No, I, I don't know if he's just expecting him to stop at the underworld, like to, to not eat anything else, but it but we actually see 
we actually see him like he's just headed towards the Nile and he's going to eat the whole thing and kill all life everywhere. So this is like, this is classic bad guy. I got a nuke, right? I'm going to nuke him. And it's like, but that's really counterproductive to your own goals. (laughs) I feel like Gerard Butler is kind of doing a crazy Mel Gibson thing toward the latter part of this movie. I think Gerard Butler's been doing a crazy Mo Gibson thing for the last decade. In general, yeah. Just, I think he's just, he's full on. I saw like, Lethal Weapon, I'm going to make that work for me. Yeah, I'm, I'm payback era Mel Gibson payback. here, where I'm just, where I'm, I'm Did just. Did Braveheart give up? Did payback give up? Yeah. Mm. It's, it's so Ra attempts to kill him with his staff, and because he's been upgraded with all of the other god parts now, not even the power of the sun can kill him. <laughs> Which, I mean, it's a nice line. You know, Ross is like, no, no god would have been able to stand that. He's like, I'm not one god anymore, dad. I found the tapes under your bed, dad. I know the truth. Like, <laughs> I learned it from you. It took, I, learned I learned it from, it from watching, watching you. you. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, and and then he like roasts Ra, which the movie sure makes it look like he dies, but later Jimmy whispers tell us that that's not possible. Which apparently none of these gods can die, right? Because they're all coming back. I mean, well, I mean, in general, like mythologically speaking, that's fine because the gods mm-hmm. do die all the time and come back all the time, right? But Absolutely. for movie logic, that's really, really difficult. Yes, it's hard to know that none of the characters have consequences or stakes, and that's certainly what it feels like. Um, so after Ra goes down, Set, Set takes Ra out, Apophis begins immediately eating through the underworld, and Nubis is kind of holding him back, which again, the powers required to do so are very nebulous. We don't really understand them. It, uh, whatever. It, it's, it's just very strange. But Apophis begins his wanton destruction, and... I could not stop thinking. Yeah, I remember even when I first saw this movie, I could not stop thinking of Green Lantern, yeah. the Ryan Reynolds Green Lantern, oh. because at the end of that, he's fighting uh, Phalanx. Not Fa- is it Phalanx? I don't remember. It's like, it's, but it's like a giant fear cloud, right? <laughs> it's just this giant. It's a it's a freaking smoke monster, and and that's what they're fighting here, and. The thing that kills me about it is that even though this big smoke monster is bearing down on everything, they have absolutely no intention of trying to stop it or fight it. Um, which I understand. I mean, it's an unstoppable force. It's the primordial gods of chaos, right? But like, it's never even a discussion. They see it and they're like, yep, can't do anything about that. I guess we're just going to have to go do this other thing to try and stop it. And I would have at least liked to see my heroes be like, what do you think? Should we should we go and take it on? And they'd be like, nah. Uh or or something. Like it just it it's it's just so strange that nobody even is trying to stop it. And 
And then, then the scene right after that, after, you know, they're sort of riding on their own special chariot. That's where we get Rufus Sewell as architect man, like going over the, the specs and specifications of the obelisk. And he's like, ah, it's this tall, and we've killed he, this he many people. You might have forgotten and... he was the builder. Yeah, well, you did he it. not Did he not see the Apophis cloud? And he was standing outside wow. as it came down and started eating the Nile. Is he unconcerned about that? We got this obelisk thing that we gotta <laughs> worry about. I mean, it's, it's pretty big. You know, the Apophis yeah. cloud, I'm sure yeah. Seth will take care of that. I'm sure that giant worm cloud monster isn't going to do anything to disrupt the quality of my building. I need to check into the quality of this scaffolding is what I need to check uh, into. Apparently so, yeah. I and, have unions forming on my back. I just, you know, this is a mess. And then, um, okay, I, was, I, was, I specifically made a note to ask you about this. So they're going up in the elevator to the top of the building. Right, and and that's it's very obvious that the elevator is going quickly. Rufus Sewell is very proud of his elevator. He's proud of his obelisk. He, it's a it's a it's a glorious modern edifice. And then Jimmy whispers, just jumps off of it out a window, and says, "I'll see you at the top." Yep. What Im- in Im- the hell? Implying that he is going to be able to scale the outside of the building faster than riding the elevator designed to get to the top of it. The fastest. The the fastest. (laughs) Presumably the same one that Set had used earlier to get to the top of the building. I mean, he dips out Um, like he's a genius. Like, I'm going to take the shortcut. I'm I'm out. Uh, You know, I got to get out of here. And and then he, we just see him climbing, and his handholds are like hieroglyphs. So it's not like it was specially designed for climbing. He's he's just climbing, and it it feels like they had a scene missing. Well, it seems like most of this movie feels like scene missing, but it feels like there was a scene missing where they discussed sort of getting to the top at different times, so that they could you know dual fight against set. But no, we didn't see that, and and that was not shown to us. And then, sure as shit, Jimmy Whispers gets to the top before the elevator, which I, I don't know. Maybe I just misunderstand how elevators work, or or how climbing buildings is difficult. I think you maybe he's a god. How gods of Egypt work. That's really what it must be. Is I just don't understand how fast he can climb a building with inadequate out exterior handholds. But he gets to the top, and he's fighting Seth. Uh, Seth. Seth. <laughs> he's <laughs> fighting Seth. And, uh, you know, I mean, there are, there are pieces of this that look okay. I mean, you know, there's some staff fighting and some some interesting little visual flourishes here and there. But a lot of it's just not... There's not a lot of energy to it. It's so obviously shot on a soundstage, and the lighting is bad. There's just there's a lot of stuff here that is not working. There's really bad follow through with the action shots, like the fight shots, where you don't get 
a good a good flow of motion from one cut to another um just disorienting it just didn't didn't do anything yeah it's it's just it lacks energy and, and it's so strange because that's one thing that Proyas generally is very good at is is energetic and energetic movement of shots and, and this while i mean there's there's definitely camera movement and there's there's an attempt at energy i don't know if it's in the edit or if it's just in the choreography it just it, it doesn't come through and this this fight scene as a result is is very straightforward it feels very rote um it's not especially fast honestly it, it feels like they didn't have time to really plan it and, and really come up with cool things to do and usually when it's chopped up this badly and and the edit is is so poor it's because it didn't look good and you're cutting around the weaknesses of the actor's capabilities and that really is what this feels like even though i know both of these guys have combat training from other stuff that they've done that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be able to put together a fight scene together in a in a venue like this and, and it someone just someone still has to do the the groundwork for the scene to to get those actors to fight in a believable and sensical fashion and that just didn't happen it certainly doesn't feel that way and so then we come to the crucial moment right uh set transforms eventually sort of tosses britain thwaite eventually gets to the top of the tower and then sort of saves Jimmy Whisper's life by uh, using a grappling hook that we've seen him use a couple of times to sort of, you know, pull the spear away from getting, you know, stabbing him. Oh, and he killed Rufus Sewell. I guess we should mention yeah. that. Uh, Rufus Sewell, they, they got into a nice little fight on the elevator and uh, Rufus Sewell fell and died. And uh, and then he he's the one that tells him, like, Apophis is coming. You're not even going to get the chance to go to the afterlife because he's eating the afterlife. And 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 he's like oh no ah. and, and but it's like but you're are, are you not just trying to stop apophis right now meaning that the afterlife will definitely exist by the time he gets there like what how is that a threat how are how is he supposed to be afraid like you're really trying to stop that right now but what it does it it doesn't matter um so Brenton Thwaites pulls the the other eye off of Seth's armor and then attempts to throw it and back then to Horus. Throws it to the guy with no depth perception. Right. <laughs> and doesn't even throw it well. It goes way wide. And uh but he doesn't even go for it. Because Brenton Thwaites is falling off the building. And so Horace decides, Jimmy Whispers decides, I'm gonna save you. Because my and, and then he gets this nice little monologue after he rescues him because he's able to turn into Birdman, right? He turns into his Birdman form, and he's like, "What?" Brenthwaite's like, "Well, how could you do that?" And he's like, "Well, Ra told me that you know the, the you know my journey was just beginning, and I just had to believe in myself. I just I just had to believe in myself. That's really what it was. It wasn't not having two eyes. That's ridiculous. It was really <laughs> I just needed confidence and I needed to respect the humans." I needed to stop asking you guys to get me water all the time. And I just needed, <laughs> needed to, to get really my water understand. myself. <laughs> I said, get my water myself. 
and not treat you guys like garbage, and then I could transform into my Birdman form, and that's what we needed here. And and that is that's his character arc, right? Don't make the humans get your water. Don't make them don't don't make them brush your hair when you wake up from a night of drinking. Be nice. And and so he learns his lesson, turns into his Birdman form, and then we get a a barely perceptible fight between him and Gerard Butler where they're flying around there's a lot of like really unrealistic camera movements and and they just i don't i don't even know they just kind of kind of grab at each other for like 10 minutes <laughs> and eventually uh birdman starts ripping the pieces off of of set uh, and Set at this point is very powerful. He's got all of these other god powers, and he has the Staff of Ra, which, you know, we're told is the, the greatest weapon in the history of weapons and harnesses the power of the sun, blah, blah, blah. And and their fight causes the, uh, the obelisk to completely collapse, right? Absolutely falls apart. Who could have seen it coming? I don't know. Maybe having a builder around constantly talking about how it's the greatest building ever was a bad idea for not telegraphing what was going to happen to it. Um, but Seth gets real hurt, right? So I know I feel like I feel like I've been nitpicking this film more than it it probably deserves, but we've seen these gods get get pretty jacked up, right? fall and, and get stabbed and all this different stuff and so he falls a long way but he is just absolutely destroyed at the end of this uh i do i will admit i do like the look of the gold blood it's not bad uh you know it's all like spreading around it looks kind of like liquid and and, and and chunky i don't know it's like chunky looking gold blood <laughs> the blood um, is thick it, it yeah, it looks thick and and that's kind of cool. I don't mind that. And but why are we seeing it just now? Yeah, like it's we've we've seen it in little spurts and stuff, but like legitimately here we've seen you know, it's it's just gushing from him. And then he begs for mercy. Like that is the this is the strangest thing. So set in his moment he's like, "Hey, I showed you mercy. I didn't kill you." And and then our hero ladies and gentlemen goes like, well, I won't make that mistake. And then he stabs him in the freaking heart. And that was him. a real Neil before Zod man of steel moment where I was like, wow. All right. Yeah. Like he, he, he just had this revelation that Mia, you know, maybe just not being an asshole could really, you know, turn things around for me. Like that's really what I should be. And then he just murders Gerard Butler's character, which it means not like he doesn't deserve it. I get it. Like he's a bad guy. But it 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 see it seemed like a rough turn. It's like, oh, okay, 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 gotcha. Uh then he, you know, the movie's over at this point. Like everything else is just progressing. <laughs> and and he he goes down to like, you know, he's in front of his people, he's got his full birdman armor on, which again just looks it looks so strange. I know Proyas, like, apparently like the, the work that he had done 
for the angelic characters in uh, the Paradise Lost that he was doing. They provided the, the framework that they used to build these full CG models. <clears throat> but man, they don't look great. They just really don't. Especially in like full sun, not moving. These The these scene where good. he's putting his other eye back in is one of the worst looking things it's, in the world. It doesn't his even seem... It's yeah. so tiny. It does. It's not scaled properly. Like it's, it's just. It's like mm. three quarters the size of what a hand should be. It's yeah. just ever so slightly wrong. <laughs> yeah, and when he gets back to Beck, Beck, who we saw was injured before the fight with Set ever began, uh, is dead. And so Horace takes him, lays him in the tomb with uh, his girlfriend, and and you know. Sad, oh, emotion, emotion, feel emotion, and you know, slow camera movements, sad music. Uh, which the I praised him last week because Marco Beltrami had a, a pretty solid score with knowing, uh, not so much with this one. Um, this is the definition of phoned in, yeah, it, it, it's rough, and so sad music is sad, everything else is just Egyptian, you know, it's just, it's just that over and over and over again. I, it, yeah, it's, 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 it's underbaked, <clears throat> put it that way, but none of it matters because Ra shows up on earth, even though he told us earlier in the movie that he can't go down to earth and stay there. This is that his curse is to stay above. But he goes down. Well, but the worm guy was busy, so he could. That's true. Play. He goes down. He kills the worm guy again, or drives him off, whatever. And then Horace asks him to save his friends. That's the only wish, right? He's he's grown up. He's not going to wish for something. I selfish. don't want them to be together forever in the afterlife. I want them to be no. here on Earth a little bit longer. I want them to be together here on Earth with me. And uh, and they wake up, and everything's fine. The world is great. And, uh, you know, Horace gets crowned, all the other gods get back, we get another nice little Chad, Chadwick Boseman scene to tag it out, and, you know, he gets, he finally gets his crown, you know, they finally are able to, to make him the god of Egypt, right? And then we find out that Britton Thwaites has been assigned as his head advisor, right, so he's now going to be able to give the life to his girlfriend that he always promised, living in a palace, having babies, Everything's great. No problems. No concerns. The world's fine. And then we get our sequel bait, right? Because Horus needs to go to the underworld to rescue Hathor again. Apparently he's done it once before. He's going to do it again. He has the bracelet now, so he should be able to give that back to her and, and bring her bring her back. And he's like, hey, can you hold down the fort for a couple of days, Britain Thwaites? And he's like, oh, of course I can. I'll be like you weren't even gone, uh, even though, you know, he's a giant bird man that's going to go fly around the city here in a second. So people will probably suspect <laughs> whatever. <laughs> um, but we get this really weird, uh, he like flies up into the sun and spreads his wings. And uh, all I could think of was uh, Batman when he like flies the bat plane up into the moon and, and you see the silhouette of the bat the bat symbol and all I could see was that. And I was like, okay, it's a cool shot. It looks nice, but what's he doing? Is he showing off or is he going to go rescue the woman he loves? 
but so he, he flies through the city again. I am so, I am so tired of, and and given my love for David Fincher, this doesn't make sense. But I am so tired of impossible camera movements. I'm just I'm kind of over it. All right, like if you're going to to make a shot, I want you to at least pretend that this camera has to be doing something real. But the difference I, between David Fincher and some something like this is that when he moves his camera, even if it's impossible, it's intentional. And this doesn't feel intentional at all. No, it's just it feels big like the camera's and just moving and spinny and and. You know, I mean, it's everything's frame center and stuff. Like, I, I, I mean, it's not unreadable, but it's not interesting. Like, it's just, it, it's, it's CG camera moves from 2002. Yeah, that's what they feel like. And a lot of the stuff in this movie feels that way. Like, there are so many things about this movie that make me want to like it. I want to like it. I, when it starts up, when when the music gets going, when the characters get introduced, like I want I want to be on board. I want to like be like, yes, let's do this. It's goofy, fun, fantasy, gods and monsters stuff. And then it just all falls apart so fast. And the middle of the movie is such a drudgery that even if there are some cool moments at the end, and there are some interesting ones, it's hard to recommend sitting through all of it because it is so long. But all right, so let's let's get into our our final phase here. That's that's the end of the movie. Uh, Birdman flies away. He you know unmotivated and uninteresting camera moves his way through whatever city that's supposed to be Egypt. I don't know. And and then I was expecting like this this big like bombastic shot to end on, but he just flies over the water and water splashes on the the frame and it's over. That that so infuriated weird. me. I'm, and I'm not, I'm going to try to articulate what was going through my head when the water splashed on the camera. I don't mind when, when there's that level of, you know, blood on the camera, so real. Right, I don't mind right. that, but it needs to be a consistent choice. Mm. This Mm-mm. did not happen through the entire film. Nope. That never happened once. The camera is not an object that can be splashed on. Until that moment, and it's the final shot of the film, it is literally what you are left seeing at the yeah. end of this movie. Yeah. And it's a completely out-of-left-field visual choice that doesn't correspond to anything else in the movie. And I can't really think of a more perfect and appropriate metaphor on which to end <laughs> the gods yeah. of Egypt. Yeah, I mean, what I thought he was going to do was like, punch a hole through the earth and like go down to the underworld or something. Yeah. Like I, I, I thought we were going to see some like cool. Or, you know, he'd like, fly up into the know. sky and then he'd like go down into a pit and there'd be all kinds of flames, you know, something right. stupid. You know, some, yeah. Something acceptably dumb to imply, Hey, I'm going on another adventure. Won't you come along in gods of Egypt too? Um, but no, we don't, we don't get any of that. He just flies over the water and, and oh, we got some water on the, the camera. Sorry. Mm. Don't mm. worry, it's a CG camera. Don't worry about it. <laughs> we won't even have to wipe it off. So, um, I have a feeling that this segment is, is going to be tough. But, uh, so what is, your, what is your one thing? What is one thing 
I think there are many things, but what is one thing that could change the fortunes of gods of Egypt? Because there's, there's a lot here that could work. I but, did a lot of thinking about this. Yeah, me too. Because after the movie, I was like, I, I did not like anything in this movie. <laughs> and now I have to think of just one way that I would fix it. And for me, it is the script. The script is, yeah. is atrocious. It's bad. And if the script had been even a fraction as good as something, I'm going to bring it up again, The Mummy, which had mm-hmm. that right amount of old Hollywood glamour and action movie cheese without being too much, if we had that kind of script power, this would have been a cute film and this would be a cult classic. Because you can forgive visual missteps. You can forgive a confusing visual language of a film. You can forgive so many of the look issues of this movie, but I cannot forgive the dialogue, the plot, the nonsense. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Because ultimately, those are the reasons that I'm going to continue watching the film. And if those aren't present, if those like basic storytelling needs aren't met, then who even cares if the movie looks good or bad? True. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, the, the basic fundamental structure of this film, while serviceable for a film of this type, the effect of it like the effect of its structure and layout does nothing to help it right it's trying to lean on these very classic fantasy structures and i think they needed to look elsewhere like this is not if they're not doing enough to make this film feel classic and they are not doing enough to make this film feel modern it is in this weird in-between space that doesn't work for it. The humor feels too modern for its setting. And the setting feels too old for what we're expected to buy as part of the universe. Um, it, it's a very weird mishmash. Um, again, Alex Proyas likes genre mishmash. That's what he does. And he can be very good at it. But it does not work here. The balance is not struck appropriately. And, and it, it needed to be done. Um, I had a lot of things, many of them along those exact same lines, but in the 11th hour, as I was really thinking about it, I, I, and this is going to sound cheap, but I think you could have fixed a lot, not all, but a lot of what was wrong with this movie by making Horace Chadwick Boseman. Yeah. I, I think... I think part of the the backlash like the god against... of wisdom who's actually kind of a doofus and has to become wise would mm-hmm. be cool. Yeah, and e- even if if you gave him the basic part that Coster Waldau was playing, I think in Chadwick Boseman's hands, he would have been a much more interesting and a much yeah. more dynamic character. Even if you didn't, you know sort of radically change the take. I think just having someone who is capable of generating more empathy instead of just kind of bumbling around, um, someone who is capable of, of, of coming up with a performance, right? Just like, coming up with some idea of a character. 
Yeah, like Horus just needed to be more than a block of wood. And and that's part of the problem is that Costa Walda, who's a very capable actor, like he's really good. But probably a guy who has to be given something to work with. Right, and I don't get the impression that Horace had much to work with. Whereas I think Chadwick Boseman, as an actor, probably could have brought more to the screen just of his own ability, uh, even if it wasn't there on the page. I, I think he would have been capable of it. But I think this movie's issues with representation that gave it a bad and sort of toxic word of mouth before it ever hit the streets, a lot of that would have been alleviated by casting Chadwick Boseman as the lead. Ooh, Not all. But it would have helped. Um, I think the the other piece of that is that all of the gods needed more development, right? Because unfortunately, a lot of people are not familiar with those archetypal characters from Egyptian mythology. Which is why I think they leaned heavily on on more sort of Grecian tropes, because at least more people know that or are familiar with it. But I think you could have leaned harder into the Egyptian mythological components if you just spent a bit more time establishing them. Because most of those gods we only see in the opening, and then some scene where they're either being murdered or, or dying, right? Whereas with Thoth, even just a couple of scenes... That develop that character and he becomes likable you care about him you want to see what happens to him do that with some of the other ones too and so like just a lot of missed opportunity but i think this movie probably could have worked better with tweaks to the casting like actual just move the pieces around a little bit kind of thing um because unfortunately you're you're two sort of basic white leading men they're just not doing a lot with what's here. Uh, Butler, again, at least knows what movie he's in. He knows what movie he's making, and he is just enjoying himself, and that's good. <clears throat> Waldau is, is just not... He's not energetic enough to lead this movie that way. And, and Britton Thwaites wasn't positioned to be the lead of this film, right? He's in it, and he's in it a lot, but he's not supposed to be the lead of the movie. And he certainly can't carry it on his own. So that was kind of me. I had other things, but I really, I think I would be much more interested in watching this film over and over again, even if you just transposed and put Chadwick Boseman in the Horace character and just let him be that. I think that, I would be more interested would, in watching that it. That would be really good. Yeah. <sighs> All right. So that's our, our one thing. Uh, again, there are many, many things that we could discuss, but that's that's one. Uh, so what's, what about the recommendation? This is a harder one. Right? This is more on the snowman scale of watch or not. What do you think? Where are you at? I can't in good conscience recommend that people watch this movie. <laughs> yeah, it's a hard I feel one. I feel that it's my responsibility to let people know what they're getting into. If you choose to watch this movie, you know, I can't stop you, but you shouldn't because it's bad. Um, <laughs> it's, of course, maybe the only reason I would recommend seeing this film is to see Chadwick Boseman in right. another role where he was doing something interesting and other people were not. 
Um, yeah. Otherwise, I mean, as far as my score, you know, to let people know how I feel about this movie, um, I feel like a 35, honestly. Mm. And it, yeah. that breaks my heart to even say. Yeah, um, to even put Alex Proyas in that department. but You know, again, true. tattooed on my body, a quote from an Alex Proyas film. I love, I love The Crow. I love Dark City. Two of my favorite films of all time. And yet, this exists. This movie is just a lot. It is a lot. Yeah. It's, again, my the most common question in my mind as I watch it, even after multiple watchings at this point, is... What is this movie? What is going on? Why does this exist? Like it's like it doesn't even understand its own place and its own its own purpose in the universe. It it just is in this uncompromising and and fascinating way. So I'm I'm very close to to your score. I, I was actually a little bit lower. I was gonna do a thirty percent. Uh, and much like you, I have it. I find it hard to recommend this film. Um, it would be an easier recommend if this was ninety-five minutes and out. I'd be like, sure, just go for it, just give it a shot. Yeah, you you're know. not losing anything. You're not losing anything. You know, put it on, yeah, do it. But at two hours eighteen minutes, no. I mean, that's unless you just are. It's a Sunday afternoon, and you have absolutely nothing to do, and this thing sort of hoves its way into your view on like basic cable i i don't think i could recommend it uh i i really don't um i will say that the first time i saw it uh i was uh, it was actually the the weekend i saw hamilton in chicago and we were staying in a hotel and generally when we stay in a, yeah i know right when we stay in a hotel you know they, they, that's got hbo and stuff i'll usually just kind of put the tv on as i'm falling asleep and and what was on but gods of egypt and i was like oh i remember this coming out this had been out it'd been like a year at that point and i was like oh, i'll check this out and and i couldn't look away like i could not stop watching it was like what is this i don't understand and and that was my first viewing experience. I, I've watched it a couple times since then, just again. But the same question persists. You know, when Brenton Thwaite is, you know, flipping down a waterfall, I'm like, what is this? Who decided that this was good? It just doesn't make sense. So, yeah, I, I'm at a 30% on this one, and I'm, I'm going to go with a nope. Yeah. A big old pile of nope for this one. Uh, as much as I love Proyas and as much as I think he's still a very capable director and there are glimpses of it in this movie, like absolutely there are moments where it's like, yeah, that's, that looks good. That's a nice shot. That's a cool moment. You know, like there, all those pieces are there, but whatever directive he had or whatever idea he had to make this into some kind of large scale blockbuster, it just didn't work. Not on, basically not at any level. And uh, and it, it's a hard film to recommend watching to anybody. There's there's not a lot of value here. I could say I, I think Chadwick Boseman is the 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 lone bright spot in this movie. And watching it for his performance, if you're just interested in seeing what he chose to do with that character, then I, I'd say go for it. But you can probably find those clips on YouTube. If we're being honest, yeah, uh, he wasn't in the movie enough to justify no, actually watching it. I mean, ten minutes maybe. You know, it's it's not a lot. 
So, uh, yeah, that's kind of a hard no for me as well, but it exists. It's out there. You can find it if you want to, but we're not going to tell you to. All right, well, let's uh, let's wrap this up. It's been a nice deep dive discussion on a movie that probably didn't deserve it, but it was fun to, to talk about all of the various craziness, <laughs> I guess. So uh, where can you be found on social media so people can yell at us about how amazing this film actually is? I can be found at Baskinator on Twitter, and please come at me about Gods of Egypt. I want to talk about this movie. That's true, yes. Come at me, bro. Um, I can be found at T Baskin on Twitter as well. You can get us at F Peace Theater on Twitter or failurepeace at gmail.com if you have a question. Happy to respond. Uh, so uh, that should round out our Alex Proyas trifecta, I suppose, of failure pieces. We may not get a chance to return to the well with Proyas unless we start looking at some movies that were successes, like The Crow. But uh, until he graces us again with another cinematic treasure slash disaster slash I don't know, uh, we we may have to, to move on for Mr. Proyas. And, and as sad as it is to say, that's probably for the best. Uh, in any case, no movie is a failure if somebody loves it. This one, not so much. And uh, nobody's a failure if they're loved and we love you. So thanks for listening, and we will see you next time. Bye-bye.